welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Oh. If you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes YouTube, Facebook, Stitcher, Spreaker, Blueberry, whoa, the heck with it. As I said before, go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the Radio Chick Annie, along with my courageous and colorful co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, how's it going, Oh, Annie? man, it is. <laughs> 
been one heck of a week this week, and right now poor Whitaker is on the hot seat over in Congress, the, the congressional hearing uh, about yeah. the Department of Homeland Security. And, oh, what a circus it is. We get so much to talk about, and, Curtis, we've got ourselves some great guests. Uh, I have to apologize for those that are listening in, trying probably to get onto YouTube. Uh, but for some reason, I got a message just as I was clicking to go live that my license has expired, whatever that means. So I'll try to get the uh, video up onto YouTube later on this evening. Uh, so I do apologize for those. But it is up on Facebook working rather well. Uh, good Lord. If it's one thing, it's something else. Anyway, as I was saying, we've got ourselves some great guests here. With this new format that we have here on Fridays, we're just going one after another after another. And unfortunately, one guest backed out last minute last night. But that's all right. We still have a ton to talk about. So we're going to have Carl Austin Bay. And this guy is absolutely awesome. Um, He has a new book out called Cocktails from Hell, Five Complex Wars, Shaping the 21st Century. Uh, We'll be talking to him about his book, as well as about different things that are going on. He writes about in his book that are happening today. I want to get his take on that. And then we have uh, a new guest coming on, Major Fred Galvin. Now, he may be late uh, because he's in a meeting, and he's got a general that he has to listen to a briefing. So he cannot leave until the general leaves. So however long-winded this general is, let's just hope it's short and brief. Uh, But he was one of three Marines that was accused of war crimes. Yeah, falsely accused of war crimes. Um, For 12 years, he pursued his innocence. And he's going to talk to us about what is going on with that. He was finally exonerated after 12 long years. Uh, We're going to talk to him about that and other issues of the day. Uh, He was actually forced to retire a few years back. And we have Beer Can Joe Cunningham as my my congressman. And uh, Beer Can Joe right now has nine Republicans in the field challenging him for his election in 2020. And one of those happens to be a friend of mine. Uh, His name is Mike Covert, and he's going to come on and talk to us about that. And finally, we've got the executive producer of the Gosnell movie joining us. We've had the authors uh, of the movie, uh, Anne and Phil uh, McAleer. We've had uh, several people involved with the uh, Gosnell movie on. And now we have the executive producer that will be joining us today also. So as I said, we got ourselves a jam-packed show, a lot to talk about, and a lot to do. That said, Curtis... I gotta take a See, deep I was breath. Gonna ask you, I was gonna ask you, what what do you think about um this green deal? You know, I always wanted to go to Hawaii but I always wanted to fly over there. I didn't want to go by train across the Pacific <laughs> Ocean. <laughs> that that's on the bucket list for today's show. That's gonna come on after we talk to Colonel <laughs> Bay. I, I I've got <laughs> Oh man, don't I can't even start to get involved in that one just yet. But we got that lined up in the uh, stuff to talk about while uh, yeah. one guest backed out, so I pulled that up. And, of course, Ocasio-Cortez, oh, the gift that just keeps on giving. Anyway, uh, that said, uh, we do have a dedication. We start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. Today's dedication is going to go out to 
Army Staff Sergeant Sean M. Mittler. He was killed on July 10th of 2010 while serving during Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. And this is coming from several different sources. Some of it is from his obituary. Some of it are, is from a blog spots, one of them calling Living Legend Team. And some of it is coming from KMBC. And some of it is coming from Clarksville Online. And it's mixed and mingled. And we start off with Staff Sergeant Sean Michael Mittler, 32, of Gladstone, Missouri, perished under enemy fire Saturday, July 10th, 2010, at the combat outpost Abel, Maine, in Waterpur District, Afghanistan, while serving with the 101st Airborne Division during his third tour of duty. Sean was born December 13, 1977, at North Kansas City Hospital and was raised in Gladstone, Missouri. He attended Oak Park High School, enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1998, spent time in the Kansas National Guard, and returned to active duty after the tragic events of September 11, 2001. Prior to his service in Afghanistan, Sean valiantly served two tours of duty in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Additionally, he served at Camp Casey in South Korea, jungle training in Panama, and trained in Thailand with Taiwanese soldiers. Sean loved to return to his childhood home when home on leave, playing football, foosball, and wrestling with his beloved niece Madison and nephews Anthony and Brendan. Sean was a very proud soldier and a very proud young man. He was a loving father, son, brother, nephew, uncle, cousin, and friend. His commitment to our country, his military community, and to his family and friends was unparalleled. We are proud of Sean. In his life and in his death, may the fight he fought remind us all that freedom is not free. Sean, we will miss you, and we love you. You will always be our hero, and you will never be forgotten. Army Staff Sergeant Sean M. Mittler last visited his family in the Kansas City area over Christmas. Then it was back to his unit and on to Afghanistan. But he appeared concerned about his new assignment, his father said. I could just tell by his demeanor that this time it was a little bit different with him, Terry Mittler said. He grew into a great man. We are very proud of him, his father said. Mittler grew up in Gladstone and attended Oak Park High School, enlisting in the Army in 1998. He wanted to serve his country, Terry Mittler said. When the September 11 terrorist attacks occurred, Sean told me that had he not enlisted a couple of years ago, he would have done it then. Mittler previously served two tours in Iraq. He was posthumously promoted to Staff Sergeant and awarded the Purple Heart and Bronze Star his father said. Mittler loved sports, camping, and the outdoors. He also enjoyed spending time with his family. Terry Mittler said his son wanted to go back to school with the goal of advancing in the Army. He owned a house in Clarksville, Tennessee. I'm going to miss seeing his beautiful smile. He just lit up a room when he walked in. Everybody was his friend, his father said. Mittler's awards and decorations include the Army Accommodation Medal, Army Achievement Medal, 
Army Good Conduct Medal, the Meritorious Unit Citation, the National Defense Service Medal, the Afghanistan Campaign Medal, the Iraq Campaign Medal, Global War and Terrorism Service Medal, Global War and Terrorism Expeditionary Medal, Non-Commissioned Officer Professional Development Ribbon, Army Service Ribbon, Overseas Service Ribbon, NATO Medal, Combat Infantry, Infantry Badge, Expert Infantry Badge, Air Assault Badge, Driver Mechanic Badge, and Weapon Qualification M4 Expert. Sean had two very special friends. Richard Dodd, a longtime family member in, neighbor in Gladstone, who was a good listener and mentor to Sean for many, many years. His second special friend and companion, stationed at Fort Campbell, was Sergeant Naziet Zamat, who is currently serving our country in Afghanistan. They were supportive of each other in the military, college, and both loved sushi. He also leaves behind his wife, Marcel B. Mittler, daughter Christine Mittler, and stepson John Marcel of Milani, Hawaii, father Terry Mittler of Kansas City, Missouri, and mother Joyce Turner of Gladstone, Missouri. With Joyce Turner, the mother of a soldier who died in Afghanistan, found his home in foreclosure months later, but a simple phone call helped change everything. Staff Sergeant Sean Mittler told friends that being able to buy a home gave him a sense of pride. He often mentored younger soldiers to make long-term plans and to save money so they could buy a house. His mother said he was so proud of his home in Clarksville, Tennessee, near his post at Fort Campbell, that the subject crept into every conversation. He was telling me all the things he would do when he returned, said Joyce Bussinger Turner of Gladstone. Mittler died in Afghanistan and never got to do any of those things. When his mother dealt with the pain of burying her son, she also learned that the economy made it too hard to sell or rent out his home. She was left with no better option than to allow the home to go into foreclosure. I felt I let him down, she said. As a mother, you know, it was so special to him that to just walk away from it was very hard. When the final foreclosure paperwork on the house came in, a notice was included from loan holder J.P. Morgan Chase that asked if the homeowner was on active military duty. There was a phone number included on the notice, and Turner said she called it. Because Midler made the ultimate sacrifice for his country, the company decided to forgive his mortgage. Turner said she was thrilled to be able to get back what she and her son considered his most cherished possession. She's making new plans for the house now. I have some options that I'm kicking around, she said, but it won't be sold. It will not be sold. A representative for J.P. Morgan Chase said, beginning the loan was something the company wanted to do for Mittler and his family. And finally... When Austin P. State University, APSU Women's Golf, picked up the bags for the first round of the Golf Week Challenge in September of 2018, one of the Govs carrying more than just one of her clubs. She carried the member of a fallen soldier. Over the winter, Austin Pay, head coach 
Amy McCollum reached out to the Folds of Honor Military Troopy Program, the FM, FHMTP, which provides the opportunity for any college program at the WGCA, which is the Women's Golf Coaches Association, to honor a fallen or severely wounded soldier by carrying a golf bag displaying his name, rank, and branch of service as part of their work with the FHMTP. The Govs honored Staff Sergeant Sean Mittler during the entire 2018 to 2019 season, a Gladstone, Missouri native who joined the Army at 19. Staff Sergeant Mittler was twice stationed at Fort Campbell, including a second time when he was able to enroll in Austin Bay. As part of the Folds of Honor program, his mother, Joyce, created a story card which was attached to the bag and provided the background on her son. Her text describes him and his life thus. Everyone remembers him as a beautiful, active little boy with the biggest smile on his face, tearing up the sidewalk in his hot wheels. Sean joined the Army at the age of 19. The world was stable. No war. What could go wrong? After boot camp at Fort Benning, I drove him to his first duty station at Fort Campbell. We arrived in my blue beast, as he named my 1996 Honda Accord. As he walked the old white barracks, I knew we were both crying as I drove away. Joyce's memory of the day of her son's death is haunting, as it is beautiful. July 10, 2010, was a beautiful summer day. I had just mailed him a package, my neighbor, about Sean. I came inside. I saw I missed his call, and he left no message. Three hours later, soldiers were at our door, and every family's worst nightmare became my reality. Sean had been killed by a sniper. His package I mailed that same day was returned with unknown stamped on it two weeks later. He had been in the Army 12 years. Each week, a different Austin Pay golfer will carry the bag honoring Mittler's legacy around the course. McCollum believes in the importance of honoring our fallen soldiers and those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. The Folds of Honor program is such a great way to honor someone who has sacrificed everything for us and the country, said McCollum, whose brother Marty is a second lieutenant in the 411 Civil Affairs Battalion in Connecticut. As we have the opportunity to travel to new places, to experience new things, to play a sport we love, sometimes we need to take a step back and reflect on the fact that we are playing a game and that there are people out there putting their lives at risk for our freedom every day. It put things in perspective. To see an actual soldier's name on their golf bag, this is someone who made the ultimate sacrifice in the name of freedom, which is such a powerful testimony to the person that Sean was. Today's show is dedicated to Army Staff Sergeant Sean M. Miller. It is dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in our military from the birth of this nation today and into the future. We also dedicate this show to the men and women that serve as first responders, be they law law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And we dedicate it to them with this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America, 
May God bless each and every one of them.
All right, we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense. You're live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show and put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Your host is with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. I want to welcome everyone that is up in the chat room. Welcome aboard, and I hope you're sitting back and enjoying the show. Ah, Curtis, Curtis, Curtis. We're waiting for our guest to uh, call in. Yeah. As usual, as usual. Oh man, I'm sending a, a message over to his agent. Uh, all right. Just bear with me as I type this in. Uh, okay, just letting him know we left a message. And have him call us. All right. And then I want to. I want to ask you about the the State of the Union and what your thoughts were on that. Oh, man, that was rocking. I mean, absolutely excellent. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If Trump sticks to the the written speech, if he sticks to what was planned to be done, and if he doesn't go off on a tangent, he's fantastic. He was presidential. He was uplifting. And there was nothing in that speech that would put people down. Uh, it was really, really good. And I just enjoyed watching the uh, Democrats go berserk. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it, too. Um, I liked it when they were kind of like put in a position where they were kind of like forced to stand and clap. You know, you, you, you could tell that, that they didn't want to do that, but they knew that they would pay a political price if, if like, they didn't stand and clap for some of the people up in the gallery and things like that. Oh, and the way Nancy Pelosi was clapping, you know, that condescending and the look on her face. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's another gift oh, God, that keeps giving. Ah, oh, jeez. And, you know, for watching AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, I'm starting to figure out how to pronounce her name. I'm nuts. <laughs> the airhead. Oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, she's an airhead, she but she's serious. Prompt, and she, she was, but she was being prompt. You know, should I stand? Should I clap? What should I do? <laughs> I swear, it was great. And and I have no idea uh, what's her face that did the, the rebuttal uh, out of Georgia. She ran for governor and lost. Um, oh, why can't I think of her name? But her rebuttal, it was like, did you actually – Watch the speech. Did anyone give you the text of the speech or anything before you did your rebuttal? Uh, guys in the chat room, I forget what the name of the woman that did, that did the the. Uh, oh yes, Stacey Abrams. Thank you, Boyd. Uh, Stacey. <laughs> it's like Stacey. You, were you watching the same speech I was? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh man. I just it, it it just boggles my mind, yeah. You know, and they they're so rabid that today they have poor acting Attorney General Whitaker uh, testifying before the House Committee, and it is so lopsided. And they're asking him questions, and he was there to testify about the state of the Department of Justice, what programs are going on, and so on and so forth. He was there to testify about factual things. 
And um, instead, they were asking him supposition questions. Did the president know about – how can he know what the president knows? Ask me about what I know. Ask me about a fact. Ask me about a program or, and details about things that are ongoing. I'll answer those questions, but don't ask me to make an opinion about what the president may or may not know. It was so asinine, so ridiculous, the questions they were asking. I, it, it was just – I'm glad I had a puke bag next to because that's what you needed in order to watch the <laughs> Democrats questioning uh, for acting Attorney General Whitaker. We've got a caller in the line. This may be our guest, so let me bring this person in. Uh, we've got a Skype caller in on the line. I'm assuming this is Colonel Bankster. Say again, ma'am. I barely heard you. Yes, can you hear me? Hello? Yes, I can hear you. Is this Colonel Bay? Yes, I can hear you. All right, good. Well, good afternoon. Delighted to be with you. And welcome aboard. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And uh, you you are a fascinating man. I'm just going to tell people to go to your website, which is your name, austinbay.net, and read about you there. Uh, amazing things that you have done and books that you have written. And I've read Cocktails from Hell, Five Complex Wars Shaping the 21st Century. And it took me a little while to get through it. And the only reason why is that I put the hard copy down because I, was, I had so many post-it notes on there, I couldn't close the cover of the book. So I ended up getting the Kindle version so I can highlight it. And I ended up with over 13 pages of notes on your book. So I was stopping every few paragraphs to write down notes. It is so interesting, and you hit everything right on the head. And when you look at what's going on today, the correlation is so scary. Um, what made you decide to write this book at this time? Well, uh, that's a very good question. It's actually a complicated question. A number of things came together. One is, is that the editor and publisher told me they wanted me to write a current conflict book, and I could do it any way I wanted, which uh, was giving me the freedom to do something I've wanted to do for a long time. Now, James F. Dunnigan and I did a series, really four books uh, with the same title, different editions, but they were all different, a quick and dirty guide to war series from 1985 to, to 2008, and Jim and I looked at current and could-be conflicts, I get asked all the time, uh, what is really going on? And that has been uh, a question that, uh, in some ways, I'm delighted to have someone ask it, but it's also the bane of my existence, because some of these com- uh, conflicts are so com- com- complicated, and they also tend to look as if they just burst on the scene. And when, in fact, they've been simmering uh, for decades, if, if not, in some cases, three or four centuries. Uh, so why I wrote this book is because I thought there was a niche out there, maybe a vast space, for a book that could explain how power is uh, created, how power is used and misused, and for some of the goals that uh, power is supposedly being employed uh, to achieve, and I'm not, I didn't do it from uh, what I would call uh, uh, an amoral perspective. If you read uh, read through uh, the book, you'll see where I make certain comments about what I think about this use of power. And the, uh, for instance, the 
uh, used by the North Korean state of, of their uh, lethality uh, of, of policy. It's outright murder. Shock lethality is supposed to gain headlines and show how tough the Pyongyang regime is and how if you, if you even uh, accost them in the street, they're going to kill you. You're supposed to be terrorized by it. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's vicious, it's uh, sadistic, and it's nihilistic. And so that's, but that is an example of using uh, certain power tools, certain elements of what, um, I'll just go ahead and, and, and blow the cover on this, dime, diplomacy, information, military, and economics. Now those break down into every one of them into a million different ways to express them. But the shock lethality policy of the North Korean regime, and all three Kims have done it, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un, the uh, grandson of the, uh, uh, of the founder, that is a, a military type because you're using lethal force, and uh, they intend to use uh, lethal force. They had the implication with shock lethality, and what does it mean? I, I realize the audience uh, hasn't had a, a chance to read the book. But everyone knows about terror attacks throughout Asia, assassinations, like uh, Kim Jong-un assassinating his, uh, uh, his half-brother, attacks on South Korean uh, soldiers and U.S. soldiers. Those are, those are ex- examples of it. But that's, I'm just picking out one. You said you'd, you'd uh, read the book and taken a lot of notes, and I thought, well, it sounds like there's going to be a test this afternoon on, on what you wrote, Austin. Uh, <laughs> And which is fine. I, I've actually had done a couple of radio programs where, uh, and that wasn't done from any snarky or uh, arrogant manner. The, the host actually wanted me to uh, talk through one of the uh, uh, one of the points I make in there, and I had to do a quick uh, a quick brain inventory to make sure. Yeah, okay, I can do that. Uh, and I, there was no uh, no, no preparation uh, for it. Well, uh, the, the thing is, is that. You can see uh, in every chapter how I uh, repeatedly use uh, that, uh, that technique. I not only talk about what I would say American adversaries are doing or American enemies. I'll write out, call uh, Iran an uh, American enemy, and it is. Uh, North Korea is an American enemy, but there's some very interesting uh, diplomacy going on. And you know that uh, in that section I have the coercive diplomatic effort of the Trump administration from February 2017 to eh, June 2018, it's continuing to go, was really remarkably well, uh, well done, well thought out, well executed. Not that it's going to work, but it's an example of actually how to use all the elements of American power to uh, Fargo, which is denuclearizing uh, North Korea. And the Trump administration has not got uh, the recognition it deserves for that. It's the kind of sustained diplomatic operation, and I'm using diplomacy as the envelope for it, because military shows, of course, every day we had heavy bombers and uh, warships uh, emphasizing that uh, the United States and South Korea and Japan could uh, incinerate North Korea if North Korea decided it was actually going to shoot a missile at Guam, Tokyo, Honolulu, uh, or even uh, e- even Seoul. So th- that military component was certainly part of it. But the Trump administration has, as I say in the, in the Korea chapter, uh, set a 
set conditions for something different that has been going on since uh, June 1950 when uh, North Korea invaded South Korea. It's, there's uh, other options on the table other than war. Uh, it, it, the other, other, other region that I... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's exactly, Go ahead, ma'am. that's exactly one of the questions I wrote down because I said the Korean War, how closely is Trump following your scenario that you write in your book that you have on page 52? Because uh, as I was reading that, I'm thinking to exactly what Trump is doing. And one thing I want to go back to is the title of the book, Cocktails from Hell. And you look at these wars, these conflicts, in such an interesting way, which is what I keep on telling people. You're not just talking about the military action on the field and in the air. You put it as if it's a cocktail mixture of using different elements to explain how a certain situation and a country is behaving. Explain the idea of the All cocktail. Right. All right. Look, a cocktail is either a mixed drink using different types of liquors, or it could be a mix of a foreign policy mix. And uh, taking DIME, the acronym that I mentioned earlier, diplomacy, information, military, and economic power, you've got a cocktail right there. Uh, In a sense, there's a mixture. Now, in the North Korean uh, coercive diplomatic effort, as I call it, why it's coercive? Because Trump flat out said from from the beginning, and if you notice, he even said it in 1999 when he was being uh, interviewed on on Meet the Press and ask about uh, North Korea, that if you had to go to war and attack them to stop them from uh, getting a nuclear weapon to uh, threaten its neighbors, American allies, and, and threaten the United States, he was willing to do it and was, was prepared to do it. So he was going to try something else first. And that's really remarkable. I do bring that up. It's an interview that Tim, Tim Russert uh, talks to Trump in 1999. And, and the, uh, the YouTube video is still available. I sat down myself and just made a, a transcript of, of, the, of the important uh, part of it, uh, literally sitting there listening to the YouTube video and typing out what Trump said in 1999, and you could argue that's when his uh, effort to denuclearize North Korea began, even though we had no idea, and I doubt that he had any real idea that he would ever actually uh, run for president, even though Russert in that interview asked him about running for president. But that's, that is a cocktail. Mixing these elements of power, and everybody does it. Not everybody has all of the uh, comparative amounts of power. Some are weaker, some are stronger. The United States still has the most powerful economy, and look how it's being used uh, right now, how our economic uh, assets are being used in this so-called trade war with China. It, It is a trade war, but it's a drive to achieve two things, I think, and I touch on them in the, in the China chapter. Now, back off just for a second. From a quick sidebar, it's really China's more military operations in the South China Sea and in the Himalayas, territorial ambitions, but part and parcel of that is China's ability to build larger military forces and arm them with more modern weapons, and that's because they have cash. They have money. They have the economic power to build and increase their military power, and then they start flexing their muscles and building these artificial islands in the uh, EEZ, exclusive economic zones of the Philippines and and, and Vietnam and 
and uh, Malaysia. But therefore, you cannot track that uh, military expansionism if you can uh, slow down uh, China's ability to uh, gain wealth to spend on it. And I think that's one of the things that uh, the Trump administration uh, is, uh, uh, hopes to achieve. The other one is to force China actually live up to its agreements in the World Trade Organization and respect intellectual property and quit stealing everything from everybody else, which they've been doing, and they, 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 owe, they owe loyalties to inventors and uh, creative, creative human beings all over the planet. It's not just in uh, Japan and the United States and South Korea and, and, and Western Europe. They've ripped off uh, people who with creative ideas on every continent. And yeah, it's, it's shameful that they, the, they've, uh, they've done that. State stealing engineering plans from uh, oh, it's happened in, in, in Southeast Asia. It's happened in, in, in South America. And then they go and employ them in their own economy and then use them as a, try to get a competitive advantage against uh, uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in, market, in the marketplace. They also use them to try to get a competitive advantage uh, militarily and technologically. So you see how that's a cocktail right there? And the Chinese employ it that way. And I think a cocktail is a good explanatory metaphor. A cocktail from hell would be a war. That's, that's the cute uh, but not so cute idea behind it. That's the, the, the deal. And that remarkable illustration that's on the cover of that martini glass with what looks like a, a, uh, either a Manhattan or a bloody martini, and instead of a pick, a toothpick, you have an AK-47. Uh, the chief illustrator at Post Hill Press is the one who came up with that. It's really remarkable. Uh, and it's, it, it captures the idea of the uh, it, 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 it illustrates the metaphor of, of, of what I'm making. Here it's been pre being presented to us every day. You want to know how it was made? I'm going to yeah. help you understand how this, how these wars and these crises, and in Congo's case, <laughs> the continuing mess in Congo, uh, why they, how they got this way. Uh, the other thing is, let me make, the, make this clear. I don't, don't want to just sit here and rattle on, but the, the, it's a good place to, to make this point. It almost matters. I mean, it matters in the real world, and it matters to people and human beings, and heaven, for heaven's sakes, especially the people living in these areas, uh, it, it matters. But it almost doesn't matter how these, uh, how these conflicts evolve, because what I'm illustrating, I'm illustrating also possibilities by showing the power interaction uh, between uh, the players, or the actors, and the participants. And each one of these, uh, that's, that's one of the things I thought I hope to be able to do. And based on some of the reviews the book has gotten, I think I managed to do that. In other words, you've got kind of something of a textbook. Matter of fact, uh, one of the reviewers called it that, a textbook for understanding these, these uh, conflicts around the world. You know, it, it's funny because we, we're talking about China stealing technologies, and lo and behold, what happened yesterday? GM ceremonious, unceremoniously dismissed, I don't know how many employees, called them in for a meeting, says you're fired, and he scores them out the building. 
and has taxis waiting for them so they can, don't take the company cars home. So where are the, is the GM going to go? They're going to go to Mexico, and they're going to go to China. So here's more technology, more U.S. know-how is going to be stolen by the Chinese with GM going over there for cheap labor. And if you think about what China's done so far, besides the stolen technology and the island building, they've got the Confucius schools all over the United States here to brainwash our kids into the goodness of communism and how nice and benevolent the Chinese are. They own, I don't know how many U.S. ports. In one instance in New England, the U.S. Navy is not even allowed to enter the port because it's considered Chinese territory here in the United States. Their expansion into Africa and the Caribbean and to South America, it, they, are, they are waging such a it, 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 war it, it, against this. Well, of course they are. Of course they are. I like that point, too. I mean, to some degree, the, the two People's Liberation Army Air Force colonels, uh, Cal and Wang, and their unrestricted warfare, uh, <laughs> think peace study that was published in 1999, are using this technique. And by the way, Cal, uh, Cal is now a, a major general. Uh, Wang is uh, retired and he teaches at a uh, senior military school. But that is something, and I, I mentioned that both in the introduction and in, and in Chapter 1. The Confucius Institutes are an example of information warfare. Of the, uh, and a very, uh, a, a, a very apt example of it because of the way that they try to control information and and limit criticism of uh, the People's Republic of China. Now, as for what you said about Chinese-owned or Chinese-operated ports here in the United States, I have not heard anything about not being able to, U.S. Uh, security being able to uh, assess them. I do know that that is a concern, not just in the United States, but uh, in several places uh, around, the, around the world, of Chinese investments and also using their own people in uh, key jobs in port control, and then they point to Sri Lanka where there was a, a loan issue, and essentially China owns one of Sri Lanka's former Ceylon's uh, uh, ports. It's uh, also backfired a little bit on China where they're trying to push this Belt and Road Initiative where they provide money, also construction crews and the like, and, they, and they're going to improve the infrastructure and Less, less developed nations, but they're starting to look at the way that the Chinese have used these as ways to, it's really a economic imperialism of a very calculated type. And it, it's backed up to some degree by a Chinese military power that they've got the a growing ability uh, to uh, defend these uh, infrastructure projects. And if somebody uh, said, oh, we're not going to pay you or we're going to nationalize it to, to uh, use military force to uh, ensure, their, in that case, their economic rights. Uh, we'll just come up with a scenario uh, it's, that has yet to happen. But as you pointed out, the elements are there. And I discussed those in that, in that uh, chapter on, uh, on, on China. I think China decided... Certain certain uh, thinkers in China, also they would have to have been uh, tied to uh, certain uh, politicians within, within the party, uh, came up with this uh, idea as a way uh, of something of expanding Chinese power 
it may have been in the 1980s, but you certainly see it being applied in the early 1990s. And I, I think I make a good case in the book that you can see it starting to uh, develop and uh, escalate in, in the 1990s. Do you want to talk about the, the Russia-Ukraine chapter and Iran and Yemen as well, or, or those? Uh, I bet those on, my list, now. on my list because I was just going to mention that Russia has shares a border with North Korea and China, which makes a very interesting relationship as yep. well as you know enemies. Uh, but was very interesting. I found also was yesterday Russia and China announced that they were backing Maduro in Venezuela which I found very interesting because here I mentioned, you know, their involvement in various continents throughout the United States and here they're pushing it forward. So with Ukraine, well, you have the Crimea. Yeah. I was going to say that announcement about supporting Maduro was actually, they made that almost two weeks ago. That's not, that's not, that's not uh, new news. And, uh, it was, you know, the Russians revealed that we have uh, contractors, as they said, security personnel inside uh, Venezuela. I hate to say this about certain press organizations. They acted as if this was shock and sensational news, except it's not. They've been there, and it was fairly well known that they were uh, uh, operating there. Maduro is uh, an ally of the Kremlin, and he's also been an ally of uh, of Beijing. And uh, the the Russians are being more overt about providing security uh, personnel for Maduro. But understand, he's had Cuban security uh, personnel and Cuban intelligence uh, around him, uh, just as Chavez, his predecessor, and his mentor did as well. In fact, is is that Chavez is a is a was a tight buddy of. Fidel Castro and uh, the Russians still operate in the Western Hemisphere, tend to operate through Cuba. So it's, uh, by the way, I read in a, on, I, I think it was on a, a, an article that uh, was on one of the Real Clear uh, uh, web, websites, web, Real Clear Defense probably, but I'm not 100% sure of it, about the time that this was uh uh, coming out that uh, one of the uh, one of the th- uh, things that the Russians were trying to do was to show that the United States that they could play in the, in the America's backyard. Remind just as you uh, you arrogant Americans you help uh, uh, help the, the the Baltic states and uh, we're going to help Venezuela. Of course, they leave out the fact that the Baltic uh, states, Latvia, Lithuania, and, and Estonia, are now part of NATO. And uh, they were independent nations until Stalin took them. I, I get back, that's getting back into the uh, uh, mid, uh, excuse me, first third of the, of the uh, uh, 20th century. But uh, that was one of the, the uh, I, I read that and I thought, yeah, I think that is uh, some of the uh, information, narrative warfare that the Russians uh, want, uh, want the United States to, uh, to hear. Uh, and Venezuela. Now, I didn't well, mean to. Sorry, it, 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 I just I thought that was worth talking no, about. I don't talk you, about Venezuela. Yeah. No, because it's funny because here in my list was I was talking about uh, Crimea, uh, the stands, and the Baltic nations. And what is funny is is that my husband is Latvian, 
So I'm very, very familiar with what is going up in the Baltics because when uh, Latvia did declare their independence finally, um, we were getting messages from family members saying that they were in the main cemetery in Riga unburying the Russians so they can send the Russians' bodies back to Russia. That is how much they hated the Russians there. And the primary port of Riga is what Putin wants. That, that's their main port that they lost when Latvia went free. But a state, a state, oh, good Lord, I cannot talk. Lithuanian, Estonia, uh, the three of those are pivotal. And once they join NATO, oh, man, we really pushed them off. Well, it, look, those, those nations uh, are, were totally vulnerable to any, any kind of, of military threat. They are by, uh, uh, by uh, Russia. And that's, that's, therefore, they have to look west. And looking west, well, they, they only real physical security and military security that they could have is a, is a relationship with, with NATO, but that gives them a certain kind of diplomatic security as well. Now, just this is also in, in that chapter talking about Finland and Sweden, two traditional neutral nations. Now, if you're familiar with what's going on in Latvia, I'll bet you know what's going on in Finland and Sweden. For the first time, especially in Sweden, in a couple of generations, there's uh, some of them for joining the West and officially becoming part of NATO and not being neutral because the neutral stance was fully all along. There was no threat coming from the Great Britain and the United States. It was always from Russia and really through Finland. And the Finns, if anybody... Colonel. Are you there? Dead. Yes, look at what the Finns did. I think we lost him. Did we? I hear you. Hello? Oh, I got a question. Okay. I, I didn't get a question. Oh, well, okay. I got a question. I'm sorry. Okay. I was just going to say the Finns uh, dealt the Russians some heavy defeats before they were defeated. I didn't get a chance to read your book, but I will. But uh, my question is, uh, as we know, China has laid claim to, to the island of Taiwan for decades. Do you see China trying to reclaim Taiwan like in the next 10 years or maybe 20? And is that area or region the next tender, you know, hot tender box? Uh, all right. Th- that is a, a critical question. Uh, you're asking me to predict something that, that I'm, uh, look, I do not see Beijing as being in, in the mood for a military gamble. Because the United States still remains, still has so much uh, military power compared to Beijing. I also think that there's going to be some recalculation, if there isn't already been some, as they look at the fact that Chinese aggressiveness in the Himalayas and South China Sea is turning India into an ally of the U.S., Japan, and Australia. I write about that. It's called the Quad. That's its nickname. And it's uh, four. Uh, now, Taiwan, have, have you ever been to Taiwan? It, it, if you have, haven't, all right, Taiwan in some ways is one big bunker. Uh, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. Uh, the uh, nationalists, when they retreated there, started preparing for an invasion. 
Now, remember, they also hold a couple of little islands right up near the mainland. One is called Kimoi. Tinman is now the way it's usually uh, uh, put on the map, but Kimoi. And the other is Matsu. And the communists never succeeded in taking either one of them. Now, uh, there's still uh, Taiwanese forces on them. Uh, China has uh, immense power to, they could, I, I'm absolutely certain they can take Kimoi Tinman uh, if, if they wanted to, but they would start a huge war that would ultimately involve the United States, and they'd be picking up a very small part, uh, piece of real estate. The uh, Taiwan Strait is still a long way, even with some of the uh, amphibious ships, uh, surface effect ships, uh, and uh, long uh, air, air, airlift that China has now. It's still a long way to go. And Taiwan has a, it's got a lot of weapons, it's got uh, some very tough uh, military units, and it's got some advanced technology. The, the, the Chinese uh, experimented in the 90s with what I call the missile drizzle. They were going to fire uh, short and medium-range ballistic missiles at Taiwan and reduce all of the air defenses and all the surface-to-ship uh, uh, missiles, anti-ship anti missiles, and then invade. Well, if they actually did that, what is the reaction going to be in the United States and Japan and uh, Australia, and how is India going to react? So I've thrown those elements out there not to avoid your direct question, are they going to do it? I'm trying to give you a picture of what China, if it's, if it's being sober and rational, has to consider before it made that kind of move. And... There's somebody, as long as they're moving on or under the water, they're going to have to confront sea mines. And sea mines, there's some very smart and sophisticated sea mines now. But even dumb sea mines, the time from World War One, you know, with a bobbing on a chain just underwater, can wreck a big ship. And uh, I am certain the Republic of China, Taiwan, uh, has uh, knows that and has prepared uh, defenses. Uh, throughout the strait, uh, they're in the process of trying to build uh, own indigenous improved diesel submarines. I'm talking about Taiwan now. And those are disciplines uh, which survive, let's say, a missile drill, but enough to, to really damage the Red Chinese attempting to invade Taiwan. I see a standoff, is what I see. What I can't predict the political dimension, and is Taiwan, can you tell me in 10 years if Taiwan is still willing to resist the mainland? And if you tell me the answer is yes, I don't think China's going to attack Taiwan. And that's what it comes down to, the will of the people to defend themselves. It was also interesting because uh, China recently announced that they're going to expand their naval vessels to be equal to the United States. So yeah. wondering whether or not they're deciding whether or not to even think about it. Uh, we've got the negotiations going on between Trump and Xi. I think it's the negotiations. Chinese naval officers making that statement 10 years ago saying they wanted to catch the United States. But uh, I think you're referring to that recent statement by a very senior, senior admiral 
that uh, he, he, he wanted right. to sink a, he even went further and said he wanted to sink a couple of American carriers. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty outrageous. I guess he was in a, uh, uh, George Patton or Bo Halsey mode. I don't know, but uh, he, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't very um, diplomatic, was it? No, it wasn't. Uh, it's no, it's, it's three my time for your time. All right. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to ask you a question because we're talking about Russia and their aggressiveness, and I came across this was on MSN. Uh, the Russian Navy reported they have a new weapon that can disrupt the eyesight of targets as well as make them hallucinate and vomit. The weapon fires a beam similar to a strobe light that affects the target's eyesight, making it more difficult for them to aim at night. Uh, they tested with volunteers using rifles and guns to shoot targets. The volunteers reported having trouble aiming because they couldn't see, and 20% of them felt they were experiencing hallucinations. The weapon is called a filin, F-I-L-I-N, and has been reportedly installed on Admiral Gorshkov, Admiral Kaskodnov, and two Russian warships. And it's expected to be installed in more ships that are currently being built. Now, I'm not a naval person. Uh, my co-host is retired Navy. But they don't, when they say they fired weapons, I mean, guns. Well, well that could be look, anything I'm not familiar with a weapon. I'm not familiar with the weapon, but I know that there are weapons that have been experimented with called dazzle effects weapons. And some of them had you know, light, lasers, uh, various uh, different kind of, uh, uh, of waves. Uh, I don't, uh, don't know much about the effectiveness. I do know that our Navy and Air Force uh, pilots and Marine pilots have complained of being lasered uh, by several adversaries. And uh, that's serious business because you really are firing, uh, if you're depending on the power of the laser, uh, you, you, you really are firing on an American military aircraft. It's, I've been on, I think, about 30 minutes, and I've, I've, I've got another meeting I have to make. I don't know what the time um, well, you, you planned on having me, but uh, I, I was told uh, 30 minutes well, on this. I, I, I don't mean to be so well, bold on this. It's Colonel been very Bart, enjoyable. No, no, yes, no, no, no. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. We did expect you for just 30 minutes. It's always fun when people stay a few minutes more. But I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Colonel Austin. Uh, and people can find you at austinbay.net. Your book is called yep. Cocktails from Hell, Five Complex Wars, Shaping the 21st Century. Uh, they can get it from your website. They can get it down from Amazon also. It has been a pleasure. And I welcome you back anytime, sir. Thank you. Invite me back. I appreciate it. Goodbye. I will. I'll talk to John. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. All right. Check out Colonel Austin Austin Bay, and you can find him at austinbay.net. It's a great book, and it is a textbook, Curtis. He breaks it down. He gives you the scenarios. He gives you the possibilities. uh, And when you look at a lot of the things he's saying that we could do, these are all things Trump is already doing. So it's that's, I'm wondering if Trump has a copy of the book. <laughs> and see, for so long oh, we, we have been focused on, um, you know, terrorists and, um, you know, groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram. But we still have major, you know, traditional enemies out there that we need to, um, you know, stand up to, like, like Russia and China. And, of course, we're working with uh, North Korea. But it's, you know, it's even more 
important that we keep our forces strong, you know, our military, you know, at its best. So, you know, I think Trump is doing all the right things in those areas. Lord knows if we had a Hillary in office or, or someone, you know, like that, I, I think we would, like Trump said, said the other night, be in a war with North Korea. Well, you got to remember, the Korean War has never ended. We're at a armistice, but we don't have a peace treaty. The longest war we have ever been in since 1950. And you think about that. Yeah. 69 years. 69 years we have been fighting a single war. And China is an ally of North Korea. So, in effect, China that fought alongside the side of North Korea... We've never signed a treaty with them. So technically, we're still at war with China. You think about that. And here we are, you know, treating them as a trade partner, GM moving their manufacturing over there. I mean, GE did that under, oh, uh, was it under Bush or Obama? You know, China's not, not a friend. They are an enemy, and we've got to treat them like that. And the way they've invaded us. Economically, socially, that they have invaded us and other nations too is an imperial power, and we've got to realize it. And I don't think they just want to overtake us militarily. I think they want to um, destroy our economy. They want to um, use cyber attacks against us to, you know, break down our our grid, both energy and um, internet. And, uh, hey, we just have to, you know, we have to be on the ball and try to, you know, build up defenses. And I'm sure they are are working towards those goals, you know, to defend. Well, you, you got you to also remember, China, China has opposition with the growing Christian faith in China. They don't want to see the Christian faith expanding unless they're able to control it. So you have government-run Christian churches and these uh, bedroom communities that you know they, they actually meet in the living room to have a service. So these these backdoor churches are being shut down. They're being persecuted. They're being put in reassignment camps. They want they want to control every aspect of your life in China. So they must control the church. So what happens? They make an agreement with the Roman Catholic Church, with the Pope, and saying, hey, listen, we're going to pick out and approve your bishops, and you will sanction the people we choose. So that way they're now controlling the Catholic Church. So they're going to try to expand Catholicism and cut down on any other Christianity that is not Roman Catholic. So they're... If they can get their hands on the Roman Catholic Church, they are now expanding into uh, Africa, into Europe, into South America and Middle America. So how much influence does the Roman Catholic Church have in South America, Mexico, and Central America? A ton. So if they can control the Catholic Church, how many faithful will they control? And how will they get their hands here into the Catholic Church here in the United States? There's so many different fronts the Chinese are fighting on, and no one really is paying attention. That's why a book like he wrote is so important. You've got to open your eyes and see what the truth is that's going on. 
you know, the stuff that Russia is doing, the stuff that's going on in Congo, uh, some of the other places he wrote about. It is phenomenal. And I'm pulling the book out right now to get to the index. Uh, Just bear with me. Because he explains it as he explains um, North Korea, uh, China, Russia, uh, tribal combat in uh, Iran and Yemen, as well as the Congo. So he covers just about everything. I was going to ask him about the Taliban negotiations going on uh, in Afghanistan. And actually, this ties into Russia, because where are they going for the negotiations? They're going to Moscow. Actually, they went this past week. It was Tuesday and Wednesday, I believe, they met in Moscow. And guess what? Mm -hmm. In those negotiations, they had former President Karzai involved in the negotiations, not the current president of Afghanistan. No one from the current government is in Moscow with the Taliban doing these negotiations. So if you you, you want peace, you want negotiations, then why aren't you negotiating with the current government? No, they're negotiating with the former government in Moscow, of all places. There's a lot that's going on out there, guys, and unless we wait to smell the coffee, we're going to go to hell in a handbasket pretty damn quick. And we've got an eight-year war going on with us in Afghanistan. I wonder what this does to our troops still stationed over there. You mentioned the Pope earlier, and I'm just wondering, you know, what was the Pope, you know, throwing over in in, um, the UAE, you know, and uh, what what it was he was trying to accomplish. You know, that's a Muslim country. You're not going to change them. You know, they've been that way for thousands of years, Islam. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that when he went to the United, you know, why would that? Why would you think that would surprise me? You got to remember, just a short time ago, the Pope went to Turkey, and he he yeah. served mass in the cathedral in Turkey with an imam, a joint service. And if anyone knows anything about Islam, if a Muslim performs an Islamic service. Inside a Christian building, they are claiming that Christian building for themselves. So it's no longer mm-hmm. a Christian cathedral. It is now part of Islam and is now one of their mosques. They did that here in D.C. at the National Cathedral, the Episcopal Church's National Cathedral. They had a joint ceremony, Episcopals and Islam, which means here in Washington, D.C., the National Cathedral is now, according to Islam, a mosque, no longer a Christian church. So, you know, people aren't paying attention. They're gullible. Well, maybe they're not so gullible. Maybe that's their intent to destroy America from the inside out, to, to destroy Christianity from the inside out. And Vorp is asking why Trump is still at war in the Middle East. Uh, Congress determined that the troops will stay. Trump, Trump is trying to pull them out of Syria, as I understand it. He's also trying to wind down in um, in Afghanistan also. And it makes sense. We cannot and continue to fight people's wars for them. They need to um, learn from us, stop killing us while we're trying to help them, and then take take on that responsibility to uh, defend their own country. I mean, we cannot stay in these countries permanently. 
the military's job is to go in there, kill people, and break things. It is not our job to rebuild a nation. Go in there, do your job, get out, and then we can offer diplomatic and economic help to rebuild your country, not using the military for social programs. That's bull. police force. Absolute bull. Right. And I don't know what's going on with no big contrast with Halliburton uh, for what, but if you have an article, something that you can find and put up there, I'd appreciate looking at it. Um, just to get off this subject for a little while, because otherwise I'll rant on this for the next three hours. We don't <laughs> want Andy doing that. <laughs> but you asked about uh, this, this absolutely idiotic um, resolution that was put forth by... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her fellow congresspersons called the Green New Deal. This, this is the craziest thing. I don't think she ran this past Al Gore. She couldn't have. She could not possibly have really run it past all her friends over there and on the left because she wants to actually make air travel obsolete. You think about that. Within 10 years, no more air travel. So what are you going to do? You can get on a steamship or a coal burning or a diesel burning steamship to go across the Atlantic or the Pacific or go up to Canada or down to South America. You know, there are places that you need to either sail overseas or fly a plane to get rid- over there. So she, how do you get rid of airplanes? <laughs> Tell me that. Just what? These are the what? great minds that our public not school not. systems are producing, people like her. <laughs> Concepts like those. Now, Why we got to reclaim for everyone schools. to know, this is, the actual, this is the actual resolution. It's 14 pages long. And, yes, I did read it because I've got highlights on it. And, yes, I did read it. So I do know what is in it. And here's some of the highlights. She wants to... They want to, leading by AOC, rebuild every single building, either rebuild it or upgrade it in the United States for state-of-the-art energy efficiency. You think about that. Every single building, whether it's residential or commercial, every building. Now, you have someone in a low-income apartment, and how are you going to get that person to upgrade. Uh, you've got low-income housing everywhere. You know, you get people living in single-wide trailers that can't afford the electricity in their place. So how are you going to m- make it mandatory that that individual must upgrade or rebuild to a state-of-the-art energy efficiency? I mean, fine. If you've, if you've got the bucks and you can afford to do it, I can't. Well, heck, we just had to do a major renovation in our house because of major water damage which just cost us, my husband and I figured it out, between replacing the HVAC unit, replacing all the ductwork underneath the house, uh, replacing the, the subflooring, flooring, and walls uh, in the master bathroom, which means we had to replace the shower, the toilet, the sink, the cabinets, uh, the walk-in closet, uh, the master bedroom. All of this that we did over the last year, cost us $27,000 that we don't have. We had to borrow the money. So now she wants us, within the next 10 years, to upgrade to state-of-the-art 
energy efficiency in our home. How am I going to afford to do that? How is a little guy like you, Curtis, or me able to afford that? And you think about how many homes and, and buildings and businesses in the United States. I'm going to have to hit that lotto. I'm going to have to hit that lotto for a couple hundred million. She has absolutely no idea of what this entails. The construction costs and what and to do it within ten years. And just think about that. You know, if you've got a small little a church that's got maybe ten members, how are they going to do that? Half the time they can't afford the air conditioning during the summer. You think about every single building. It's crazy. It, it can't be done. It is a pie-in-the-sky dream. And this is, is what these people signed the resolution. It's non-binding, so don't worry about it, folks. It's non-binding. They want to end all traditional forms of energy in the next 10 years. Uh, it's a 10-year plan to mobilize every aspect of American society at a scale not seen zero greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the majority of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere, we've had several guests on, Dr. Tim Ball and, and uh, Gregory Wrightstone, that said it's not CO2 that is the majority greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. It's HO2. So how are you going to have a net zero greenhouse gas? It's impossible. It's impossible. What are you going to do, stop the cows from farting? Excuse me, you're sitting next to that uh, sitting next to that guy in the, in the train. He lets you run out, and you just say, "Wait a minute, can't do that. We have to have net z- greenhouse gas." It's crazy. It, it, these are impossible things to do. And not only so, that, you know, you know, trees rely on carbon dioxide. You know, we're exactly. going to kill off the forest. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You remove water from the atmosphere. You're going to kill plants. People are going to start to starve because you can't plant. If there's no moisture in the air, there's no moisture in the ground. And if you kill the plants, there's nothing there to retain what moisture is in the ground. They they have absolutely no idea how the science works. They're completely clueless. And when Nancy called this pie in the sky, she, she finally said something right. Um, she plans to ban nuclear nuclear energy within 10 years. Oh, God. They want to transition off all nuclear. But they've been killing nuclear energy in the United States for the last several decades. There has been no nuclear plant new built, I think, since the 1970s. <laughs> They're all yeah, the early 60s. And matter of fact, they started to build a nuclear plant here in South Carolina that was to be run by two of our electrical companies. And um, I believe it was GE that was supposed to provide the engine for it, and they didn't. Whatever happened, it fell through. They said it was too expensive. They couldn't, you know, uh, couldn't manufacture it. And the both energy companies went basically belly up. They've now been taken over by uh, Old Dominion. But we, since, what was this, 2007, every single en- uh, energy consumer here in South Carolina uh, in this, that was covered by um, KC, 
Sumter Energy and South Carolina Electric and Gas. Since 2007, we have been paying for these nuclear power plant that has not been built. And I know you, I told you guys last year, they closed them down. They said, we're not going to build it. It got halfway built and <clears throat> billions of dollars into debt that the taxpayers are paying. The energy consumer, me, has been paying on their energy bill since 2007. So, so far, that's what's going on with nuclear energy. Oh, here we go. She wants to build trains to end all air travel. Can you tell me how the heck you're going to get a train to cross the Atlantic Ocean? Can someone tell me how you can get a train to cross the Pacific Ocean? Really? She'll probably suggest we build a tunnel under the Pacific Ocean, you know, go way, way down (laughs) and run it through the the ring of fire, you know, where they have all the earthquakes. (laughs) crazy it just makes you know they they've tried these massive uh trains uh what is it california was supposed to have a train that went from one end of california to the other they were trying to do the Uh, same thing down in florida you know amtrak they believe in mass transit yeah and here's the here's the trick. Here's the nasty little trick. If you can't drive your car anymore because they want to get rid of all fossil fuel, that means you're going to have to rely on the government for your transportation wherever you go, whether it's by subway, train, or bus. And the only way you're going to get from point A to point B is if you live in an urban area and everything that you need is within that small urban area. So you're not allowed then anymore to roam freely across the United States. People like us who live in a rural or suburban area would be forced into cities. That's a great point you make because that's happening happening in China. The Chinese control the transportation. Mm -hmm. People, excuse me, that are not allowed to go to another part of the country to to visit with relatives Excuse me, without the um, government's permission, you know they just exactly they're they're controlled exactly. And the same thing's going exactly. to happen here. Exactly, and that and what made America so great, so prosperous, because we were the first nation in the world that recognized private property ownership, that the average individual mm-hmm. has the ability and the right to own private property. And that private property is protected by eminent domain, recognized in our Constitution. And it's what made us the most prosperous nation in the world for a person like me to own my own home and no longer be reliant on a landlord. That I can turn around to my property and do whatever I want. If I want to grow food so I don't have to run to the grocery store, if I want to raise my own livestock, I can do that. But this is what they want to take away, your ability to be self-sufficient and not rely on the government. It's another way to force us to the altar of government and away from the altar of our Lord. Ah, man. Here we go. Invest in new technology of carbon capture and storage. All right. Carbon capture and storage. How do you do that? You know, if you want to capture the CO2 in the atmosphere, 
plant a tree. Right, Curtis? Simply plant a tree. Hey, I agree. I agree. I agree. However, they can't get carbon capture storage by planting a tree if they want to remove all greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, which produces the CO2s that the trees rely on to live, that plants rely on to live, that the food we eat comes from those very plants, that the livestock eat those very plants, that we end up having a healthy meal on our table. This is what well, is I, in I have something. This. I have something for you to ponder. Think about this for a moment. And I'm not a you know proponent of plastics, but if the left who spent plastic years trying to save trees and whatnot, now they want to get rid of plastic straws and plastic bags. Now, if they do that, what are we going to do? That means we got to return the paper because we used to have paper straws and we used to have paper bags. So, you know, it's it's crazy their mindset. That has happened in my county, Curtis. They have outlawed plastic bags, not for all stores, but for the vast majority. So when I go to Publix, the grocery store, I am given a paper bag. I go to the liquor store to pick up my scotch. They tell me to bring my own bag because they don't even have to deal with that. So you either uh, choke a a bird, kill a fish, or kill a tree. Oh, man. It doesn't make sense. All right, here is another part that's inside this resolution that they want to pass. It mandates that all jobs, all jobs would be unionized, especially new jobs. No longer would you have a right to work state, a state like mine that says we have a right to work. So you can decide whether or not you can, your shop is unionized or not. They tried several times to get Boeing here and Mercedes here in South Carolina, in Charleston area, to unionize. And each time they do it, they vote them down no. Instead, how this, how this makes it a green job, I don't understand if you're unionized. What does that have to do with green energy? I have no yeah, clue. In South Carolina? Yeah, well, Bigfoot, you were in Buford County, and yes, uh, Bilo would carry paper bags because it was all part of Buford County Council's resolution to ban plastic bags. Either the bags have to be a certain millimeter thick and reusable. I mean, I pick up a, a plastic bag from Lowe's when I go there, and on the front of the Lowe's bag, it says reusable up to 250 times. So they want you to have this multi-use plastic bag or a paper bag, and that's what's Buford County, South Carolina has done, and other counties are trying to do also. I know um, up around Myrtle Beach area, there's a couple of municipalities that pass the same type of ordinance, which ours was based upon. So that's, that's their logic. You either get a not indestructible plastic bag that will not decompose <laughs> when it goes wow. to the landfill, or you get a paper bag and kill a tree. <laughs> so it makes this is no too sense. much for me to that's wrap my amazing. head around. <laughs> Too much. But can anyone tell me how green energy has to do with a unionized job? This is just another excuse at controlling the worker and the individual. So you now have a union boss that will tell you what you can do and what you can't do. So the union boss controls the worker, the union boss then controls the business. 
And, oh, by the way, let's not forget that the majority of government jobs are unionized. <laughs> wow. I mean, this also, also includes a carbon tax, cap and trade tax. And someone tried to do an estimation of what this would cost, and I heard a figure anywhere between 7 to $17 trillion. Mm-hmm. Trillion. And here we are trying to pay down our national deficit so we don't get taken over by China, who owns most of our debt now. But now, no, 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 let's just put ourselves again. I don't know how many more trillions of dollars into debt. That's that's the green. That's the green bill. It's it's just you you can't make this stuff up. You really can't. Now, our next guest is supposed to be calling in Major uh, Fred Galvin. But as I said, he is in a meeting uh, with a general, and the general is giving a briefing, so he can't leave until the general says dismissed. So as soon as he is dismissed, he will be calling in, and he'll be calling in from Hawaii. Um, here, uh, Here is something. We were having this thing going on with uh, Governor Northam in uh, Virginia. He started off with that abortion bill uh, that thankfully did not get passed, where he believed that a woman should be able to abort a baby even after it's born. Um, That thankfully fell apart. So the consequence of his doing something stupid and absolutely immoral on this abortion bill, fellow medical school classmates pulled out his yearbook and made it public. So, of course, now the blackface picture goes, picture that went around the world. First he said, yes, it was him. Then later on he denied it was him. Okay. He does that. Well, guess what? There's something else that mainstream media is not talking about. Um, Governor Ralph Norman was trying to fool voters when he was running for election saying he served in Operation Desert Storm, and he uses that to play gun control games. Well, guess what? Uh, the late John Lake, let me see if I can pronounce this last name, is Lilia, reported in 2017 at a website called This Ain't Hell that Lieutenant Governor of Virginia Ralph Norman doesn't like guns. More accurately, he doesn't like the guns you have. He likes to tell his constituents that he grew up on the East Shore, so that means that he's just like you. He hunts, so guns are his friends. But he hasn't seen a gun control measure in the legislature that he won't vote for. His favorite line when talking about gun control is explaining to people he treated assault weapon victims as a doctor in the Army during Desert Storm. He goes on further to report, As an Army veteran and doctor and an Eastern Shore native who grew up hunting, Ralph knows the damage weapons can do. That's why he's been a staunch advocate for common-sense gun safety laws since his time in the state Senate. I witnessed the damage these guns can do first. Now, here is where it gets really, really dodgy. He is a child neurologist. He was working at the Army's Landstahl Hospital in Germany. And as I understand it, neurologists, they treat brain diseases, not gunshot diseases, not gunshot wounds. He deals with the brain, not gunshot wounds. 
it looks like he specialized in child neurology during and after the time he was in Lone Star, which means he would not be involved in our military uh, victims, wounded. And I know that Lundstall played an important part during the latest wars in the Middle East as the hospital treated casualties ev- evacuated from Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, etc. However, Curtis, and you may be aware of this, at the time of Desert Storm, because you served during Desert Storm, the 97th General Hospital in Frankfurt, 97th General Hospital in Frankfurt was the primary hospital for evacuated casualties. The 97th closed in June of 1992. And June of 1992, Desert Storm was over. So there's no way he would have treated a gunshot casualty of the Desert Storm War. He was not serving in the Middle East. He was serving in Germany in a different hospital than that that treated the casualties. Another lie. Another lie on the behalf of Governor Ralph Norman. And that scandal is going wide open with the uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax now embroiled in a sex scandal. And he is being sued by the victim who happens to be a college professor out in California. So um, it's getting hot out there, isn't it, Curtis? Then you got the, what is it, the Attorney General that likes, you know, to dress up in blackface. Yeah. And there's also wow. a senator from Virginia what a trio. that failed to take that. That should yeah, be a road no, show. Two, <laughs> those three. It <laughs> turns out to be a quartet. It turns out to be a quartet because there is a uh, really? senator from Virginia that spoke to the victim. And the victim at the time of people starting oh, to talk yeah. about Me Too, she told him yeah, about the assault. Over a year ago. Back in, I believe, sometime around August of 2017. I could be wrong about the month. I heard August. I heard October. But in 2017, he knew about this assault and about the lieutenant governor. I mean, uh, yeah, he never reported it. He never said anything to anyone. So then she finally does come forward. Everyone jumps ugly on her. But, hey, she told several other people, too. Long before yeah. the Me Too move. So, <clears throat> so <clears throat> she wrote a, a scathing piece in rebuttal to uh, Fairfax's uh, editorial or his, his public statement, whatever that thing was. <clears throat> and Boyd writes in there, Congre- Congressman Scalise, a gunshot victim, is banned from testifying in congressional committee hearings as a pro-gun voice. That's very interesting. That is very, very interesting. Um, and Vorp asked a good question on what is the basis of the ban? Because now Congress is in the hands of the Dem- Democrats, and the Democrats don't want people to be pro-gun. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has legislation she wants to put forward to make it even more stricter on gun control to the point where every single gun sale must be reported. So if 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 you were to turn around and take a gun and gift it to, say, your son or daughter, that has to be reported. Um, if you show your neighbor your gun, you can be arrested, according to Nancy Pelosi's proposed legislation. I haven't read the whole thing. I haven't seen the whole thing that she's proposing. 
Uh, I'm going to try to see if I can find it. But what I'm going by is on news reports that I've been getting and on reliable sources that I use for my news report. Not to excuse my language. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons oh, why we, we need a, a strong um, Supreme Court. So, you know, they can knock down some of this stuff. Uh, I was just reading the news the other day, and it seemed like um, Justice um, Roberts sided with the liberals on a, a case. And I'm starting to wonder about that guy, you know, especially with some of the things that's going to be coming up to on the Supreme Court on behalf of, you know, Donald Trump and his agenda. You know, will this guy side with the Constitution and, you know, uh, with the, the principles this country is founded on, or will he just side with the liberals so he can say, you know, um, you know, I, I like to compromise, you know. I'm worried about, you know, what my legacy will be. And I want to be seen as somebody that, that you know, compromised or whatever, got along. I don't know about well, that. Well, when John Roberts made that ruling, when John Roberts made the ruling on Obamacare, saying that mm-hmm. it was a tax, therefore constitutional, when inside the health care bill, which I read, both House and both Senate, it stated specifically this tax, this tax is not a tax. <laughs> Said it in the bill. This tax is not a tax. So if they're saying wow. it's really not a tax, then how can John Roberts say yes, it is a tax? So he basically rewrote the legislation. So when that mm-hmm. happened, I said here on air, I said I'm wondering who has what on him. Someone has dirt on him. Someone is holding oh, it yeah. over him, and I'm saying he's being blacked. I don't have it. I don't know it for a fact, but that is my impression. That is my opinion. So don't take it as fact, but this is what I sense, I feel. And I probably could be right. Then it kind of could be wrong. But someone's got something on him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be voting the way he does. Not with his previous history at, prior to becoming Supreme Court. Because if you looked at it, him prior, he was very conservative. Suddenly, he comes up to the Obamacare bill, and he turns on us. So he becomes the swing vote now in the Supreme Court. Yeah. And talking oh, about – you, you had mentioned – yeah, you mentioned the State of the Union. And I came across this also. Uh, Gateway Pundit had this up there. Thank you, uh, Jim Holtz, for this. And I've been trying to get a hold of Jim to see if I can get him on, back on the show. And uh, he's hiding. So I'll have to see if I can find his phone number and give him a call. Um, I don't know how many people remember former ESPN uh, commentator, or reporter, whatever you want to call her, Jameel Hill. And uh, she got fired from ESPN because she posted some tweets that uh, just didn't go with their company policy they felt was uh, I don't know. Uh, I even forget what the original posts were that got her fired. But she's back at it. You know, you, you get fired from one organization like ESPN. Don't you think you'd learn the lesson and watch what you put out there on Twitter? Well, she put out up on Twitter to, and she tweeted this to Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. She called for Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez in this tweet in a uh, what do you what do you call it? A coded message. 
uh, urging her to plot the assassination of Trump during the State of the Union. And the tweet she put out, uh, if I can find the full tweet, get your hand out of my pocket. And that's what she she tweeted like a – I'm trying to find the full tweet. Yeah, that's what they said well, the um, just before, uh, before Malcolm X got murdered. That was exactly. supposed to be a diversion. Well, she wrote in the tweet telling Ocasio-Cortez to yell out. She said, now nah, she got to yell, get your hand out of my pocket, which is a direct reference to the assassination plot that killed Malcolm X in 65, in which a man yelled that to distract the security guards who left Malcolm X's side when they went to investigate the yelling. The unprotected Malcolm X was then killed by three men in a hail of gunfire. Yeah. So she's calling for the assassination of the President of the United States. And she's working for Atlantic. I'm wondering if she's going to get fired for that. Good question. I wonder if she's going to get a visit from the Secret Service. Exactly. Well, guys, if anyone wants to call into the show, the number is 917-889-3675. I'm just going through a bunch of uh, articles that I pulled up knowing that I was going to have to kill some time until Major Galvin can get on. And here's one that really, really ticked me off. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying that these officers are going to be investigated. And I think these guys need a good beatdown, honestly, but... No, I didn't say that. Not really. Just my opinion. This was a article in The Punch, and I went and I double-checked it with a couple of the sources, and I couldn't believe that it was actually true. So I originally saw it on The Punch, but it came, of course, in Gateway Pundit and a couple of other places, reliable sources. We have in New York City, Muslims are conducting police-like community patrols in Brooklyn while driving cars that look almost identical to NYPD vehicles, leading many to describe the patrols as Sharia police. Um, Oh, this was also in the New York Times. So it wasn't just from one source. I I double-checked this in the New York Times also. According to CARE, the group is, is the first of its kind in America and a justifiable response to the 14 biased crime incidents recorded against Muslims last year. Now, they had 14 biased crime incidents last year in 2018. And how many people live in New York City? What is it, 3.6 million? And you get this whole big Sharia patrol team crimes within the entire city. Well, um, it is among the first of 30 members of the all-volunteer Muslim Community Patrol and Services that is preparing to operate in neighborhoods in Brooklyn with a goal of growing its fleet of two cars to five by the end of the month and eventually expanding citywide. The group recently held a training led by now. This is where I feel it should be investigated. These officers need to be investigated led by off-duty officers from the police department's 72nd Precinct. And in the 72nd Precinct, which is in Brooklyn South, um, I'm familiar with the precinct because I've been flown over there for uh, patrol. At one point, it was known as the murder haven of 
Uh, New York City was the highest amount of homicides at one time in the uh, mid-80s, and we cleaned it up. So off-duty officers of the NYPD were giving community policing patrol instruction. Number one, were they trained to do this? Because you have to have specific training. There's certain guidelines that the community patrol must adhere to. Were they aware of these guidelines, and did they train these individuals in those guidelines? Number two, why were they doing this off-duty? Were they authorized? And you had to be authorized by the police department, by one PP, to perform this training. If they're doing this off-duty, then that means they were not authorized. If they were doing this off-duty, then they're hiding something. Now, the patrol guide, which is tightly held and is not allowed anywhere outside of New York City Police Department personnel, were they giving this community patrol access to our patrol guide, which gives them ideas into specific tactics and things that we do as police officers? Are they placing fellow officers in harm's way because they're revealing department tactics and guidelines? So this, this is highly suspect. And I hope there's going to be an IAB investigation into these officers that were doing this off-duty instruction. Yeah, I hope so, too. That's interesting. Now, what are your thoughts on um, Camilla Harris and and her um, little, little love affair with the former mayor of San Francisco? We did discuss I can that. Tell you I what he said about it. With us. He said, mm-hmm, good. <laughs> <laughs> he claims that um, she was in love with him, and he was in love with himself, so it was a perfect, you know, union. <laughs> oh, man. She has distanced herself from it. He has gone out and, and openly endorsed her, uh, and she's because, oh, good Lord. I don't have the article, the original article, when I talked about it, Um, but she's not too happy about him uh, talking about the affair. Bring that up, huh? He got her her several positions within the the government, the city government that he was a mayor of, and he helped her, gave her a foot up in politics. So, you know, hey, it was payback. She must have to type real fast. And a good question. Well, let's go back to this Muslim community patrol because I, I looked at the pictures of the car, and the cars are painted exactly like an NYPD vehicle. Like the only difference is it has Muslim community patrol on it, MPC on it instead of NYPD. But the emblems are exactly the same. The color scheme is exactly the same. The model of the vehicles is exactly the same as an NYPD vehicle. So if you see licensed sirens coming down at you, and they have. The, the bars on top, the lights and sirens, which I don't think is legal. I don't think they're yeah, allowed to like have. Isn't that like impersonating a law enforcement? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The uniforms are also very, very eerily similar to NYPD uniforms. So there's no way if you're you're in a bad situation, you're being attacked or whatever, whether or not this person is a Muslim community patrol or whether it's a genuine NYPD officer. Now, think back to just several months back, there were two Hasidim in Brooklyn 
not too far from the 72 precinct, that were attacked by Muslim gypsy cab drivers. They were brutally beaten. One ended up coming to the rescue of the other. But there is instances of Hasidim being beaten by Muslims. You don't see Hasidim patrols going out there and you know patrolling the Muslim neighborhood, yeah. but you've got the Muslims patrolling all. They want to patrol all of New York City, all of Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. So does that mean, and Warp asks a very serious question, if you're standing there and eating a hot dog on the sidewalk, are you going to be subject to Sharia law? If you're wearing a skirt that's too short, are you going to be subject to Sharia law? Are you going to be harassed by these Muslim patrols? And I still question the authority of these off-duty officers. And how many... How many honest New York City police officers will be blamed for something this Muslim patrol does? Well, Again, my question over. is the, 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 which is exactly they right. They over. want Sharia law starting off in New York City and then go nationwide. They've already got in, uh, in certain places where there are no go zones here in the United States now. It's, you got it in Britain. You got it in Sweden, in Norway. You got it in Germany. And it's coming here to the United States. Well, you know, I I just find it hard to believe that those in political power in that, that New York area did not know this. I believe they knew it, but they turned a blind eye to it. Oh, these patrols. Of course. Of course. Of course. When I worked in Brooklyn, uh, we had an area that was a Hasidic Jew, and they did have their community patrols, but they went around in private vehicles, and they did walk up and down the sidewalk, but they would have an armband or something on there, so you knew. And all they would do is report something they saw. You know, they didn't go after the people strolling up and down the street. Well, you're not dressed in an appropriately modest way. Now, Hasidic women have to dress in a certain modest way, but a regular civilian can walk up and down the street and they would not be harassed by the Hasidic patrol. Is this going to happen with the Muslim patrol? Will they allow Christians and Jews to walk freely? Now, in this area where the Muslim patrol is, there is also a large Jewish community, too. Is it going to cause a conflict? Are we going to see a war in the streets of Brooklyn? It, it raises a lot of questions that should be brought before the city council. But, oh, wait, it's liberally controlled city government, council, and the mayor. So you're going to think anything is going to happen in the city of New York? No. And who is going to pay the ultimate price? The innocent civilians living in that neighborhood and the legitimate police just trying to do their job and being blamed for this Muslim patrol? And good question, Bob. What's the guardian angel think of this? Annie. When you were a police yeah. officer up there, um, who was the mayor? Because I'm trying to get a feel for what the political climate was when you, you know, served in law enforcement. Was it more conservative at that time? Or? No, it was a liberal that was in there. Thinking, uh, David Thinking. Uh, David, uh, David Dinkins, yeah. David Dinkins, or as, as we called him. Oh, <laughs> well, it wasn't Dinkins. It was something D-list. <laughs> what we called uh, Dinkins, Dinkins, when I got in, and the commissioner was, we called him out of town Brown, um, oh, with the man. police commissioner, showed up at the graduation in Madison Square Garden, drunk off his 
But uh, oh, if, if it wasn't the fact that he was there doing a speech before graduating class at the police academy of approximately uh, 2,400 uh, officers, uh, unbelievable. He was actually up there doing the speech, drunk. Um, he was then replaced by uh, Giuliani became uh, mayor at that point uh, while I was still an officer. Uh, matter of right over my head over here. You saw it in my office, Curtis. Uh, I was yeah. sitting there uh, with Lieutenant and, uh, and uh, Giuliani at a dinner dance. Um, I yelled at his son, Andrew, once. <laughs> he was hitting the cops on the back and I killed him to knock it off. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Uh, anyway, so Giuliani came in, and then it's when he replaced uh, the police commissioner with Ray Kelly. Uh, Marine Colonel Ray Kelly became the police commissioner uh, for New York City, and that's when I left uh, under Giuliani and Ray Kelly. And this would not have happened. This would never have happened. So I, I think the New York City Police Department uh, internal investigations, IAB, should open up an investigation on why these off-duty officers were doing this training, were they authorized to do it, what were they training them to do, and who authorized these vehicles to imitate NYPD? And is it in violation of the law impersonating an officer by having the, the uniforms so very similar, the cars almost identical, and having the lights and bars on top? Is this impersonating the police? Annie, it just might be like they do sometime in the military. They kind of sanction it. We don't know you. We don't. We we didn't have anything to do with it. That kind of uh, um, program. Well, it looks like we're going to have to rebook uh, Fred because uh, it looks like the general may have been a bit of a long-winded general. This is guy that's so in the meeting. Like he's not going to be able to join. Yeah. Yeah, he says the meeting was called last minute, and he apologized. It was, it was supposed to break up Hawaiian time at 11.30, which would have been, you know, 3.30 here. Um, but I guess it oh, didn't. Oh, he's in Hawaii. I guess it did. Yeah, he's gonna be, he was going to be calling in from Hawaii. Maybe we can get him uh, back on the 22nd uh, because it's very interesting. Like I said, he was a group of, you know, three other Marines with him were accused of war crimes unjustly. And this also involved a former president of Afghanistan, Karzai, uh, by blowing it out of proportion, using it as propaganda. The Taliban deliberately did this, set them up. So this happened in Pakistan or um, Afghanistan? Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And and he ended up uh, where a unit was being attacked. A superior officer had uh, called and asked him about tactics. the guy thought about it, gave, told him what tactics to use. The superior officer did not do it, and the other unit was ambushed. And the next day, he questioned his superior officer about it, and he says, so what? You know, I'd rather have the goodwill and lose a few Marines. He would be he would okay just to keep up the goodwill in the neighborhood and allow Marines to be killed in action. And it yeah. didn't sit well with him, and it for 12 years, he fought to uh, clear his name. So we're going to try to see if we can get him back on the 22nd to talk about that. And meanwhile, we do have our next guest up on the, on the, on the uh, teeth in straight in the studio. And let's welcome aboard a friend of mine, uh, 
Buford County Councilman who's running for Congress, running against uh, nine Republicans in the field challenging Beer Can Joe, <laughs> Joe Cunningham, for the congressional seat formerly held by Mark Sanford. Welcome aboard to Mike Colbert. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? Hello, Mike. Hey, Annie. How are you? CS, how are you? Just fine. Good to have you back. Back. It's his first appearance, <laughs> but That's we will right. have him back. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're running for the uh, South Carolina First Congressional District seat that was formerly held by uh, Mark Sanford. And let me just shuffle my papers around here to get my notes on you. Uh, just bear with me for a second, um, because I see that it's a crowded field coming in there. Uh, Katie Arrington is running again. Of course, Chip Campson's thrown his hat in. Uh, Tom Davis also has thrown his hat in. I suppose Larry Grooms and Nancy Mace. Of course, Mark Sanford has thrown his hat in. You know, I don't give Mark Sanford much of a chance because whenever I have one of my Tea Party meetings, the anger that some of my members have at him is, is yeah. palatable, uh, honestly. Um, then you've got two unknowns, Mike Seekings and Elliot Sumney that have also thrown their hats in. And I see your biggest and, challenge coming probably from Katie Arrington. And, you know, and the, uh, the interesting thing about that is uh, all those names. And I saw this from the Trafalgar poll the other day. Um, nobody other than, than myself has actually filed. Um, you know, I spoke personally to Tom Davis. He said, I'm not doing it. I uh, spoke personally with uh, Maria Walls. Her name was flown out there. She said, I'm not doing it. Um, uh, Mark Sanford and I talked, and uh, quite frankly, he, um, he, he he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with his next stage in life. Um, and, of course, Katie Arrington uh, took a job at the Pentagon. Um, you know, I don't know what's all going on with that. But, you know, I um, – if whoever wants to jump in, jump on in. The, the water is great. Um, I I uh, I look forward to this. Uh, we 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 filed early. We filed first. Uh, I wanted people to know that I'm very serious about this. I am uh, I'm the only constitutional conservative in uh, in the first district. Joe Cunningham doesn't bother me. Um, I I'll beat Joe Cunningham. Uh, uh, that that that's not the issue, but uh, I want to get this Republican nomination, and we're off to a great start, a terrific start, and uh, this is going to be fun. Well, yeah, now you've just got a brand new website up, and it's titled MikeCovertForCongress.com. And just to let you know, I've got a link on the show page here, so when people catch the podcast later on, they can click on it and go to it, and they can make a donation to your campaign. Um, I, I know that you got to flush it out a little bit more and get your, your issues up there and what your goals are out there so people can understand what you stand for and what you're running for. Uh, so I'm going to throw some questions at you on where you stand on issues such as term limits. Um, first of all, the uh, that, I see your picture. If you could make that a little smaller, make me look a little skinnier, that would be great. <laughs> uh, and the website is uh, <laughs> MikeCovertForCongress.com, MikeCovertForCongress.com. And yes, right now it is uh, it's it's simply uh, for fundraising. This first quarter, we are 
That is the only thing we're doing is fundraising. I'm going to go meet in March uh, with uh, three heavy-hitting groups up in D.C. Uh, we have appointments. They, they've already been introduced to me on paper and, and video and whatever. Uh, they want to see me. Uh, but to be able to get in the show, uh, you have to have, uh, you know, shown that you're viable and that you're you're vitally, you know, impressive to them to to make this work. This is, you know, as you know, Annie, this will be one of probably five uh, congressional runs in 2020 that will receive major national coverage, national news. Uh, and it goes without saying why here in the first district for 40 year Republican term. But, um, you know, extremely excited. Mike Covert for Congress.com. You asked about term limits. Yes, I'm a term limit guy. You know, I, I, I know uh, senators and, and congressmen in both the state and, and in the federal uh, uh, Congress that have had 30 or 40 year terms and and that's just not what the framers of the Constitution, and I refer to that a lot, um, the framers of the Constitution, that's not what they had in mind, was that you would make a career out of, of, uh, of being a congressman or a senator or what have you. That's great. But what would your term limits be? Would you have, not, say, 12 years for Congress and eight years for Senate? What would you... What legislation would you support and propose? Um, you know, that, that's, that kind of issue is, um, you know, if I had to, for me, for Mike Covert, um, you know, in the, in the House of Representatives, uh, there are two-year terms. Um, those two-year terms, uh, that's probably, uh, uh, you know, that's awful short. As you see with what there's what uh, Cunningham and the rest of them that are going to be up in two more years, they have to start campaigning pretty much immediately after they're done. It, it's it's gravitated to that largesse type of deal. So, you know, if you're spending more time campaigning than you are actually doing the people's work, it's defeated the whole purpose. Be that as it may, um, without that change, uh, you know, a, a senator, a six year term. I believe in, in, you know, I think two two of those six-year terms, and and as a uh, uh, member of the House of Representatives, uh, four four to five terms is is plenty. Uh, then it's time to uh, uh, you know re, retool the uh, who, who's representing you. Okay. Um, also, now there's been talk on some people about abolishing the education system, taking it out of the federal government and bringing it back down to the state and local levels and allowing us to have school choice. Would that be something that you would also like to see done? I've written several articles um, and, and, you know, pinned some white papers on what would I do, you know, if I was uh, given the chance to sit in Congress. And uh, over a course of a weekend, I put together a list um, of things that I immediately cut from the federal budget. The list actually turned out to be $1.7 trillion. Now, that's, that's adjusted over a certain time, and I believe that was five years. Uh, one of those things was the Department of Education. Nowhere in the Constitution have I ever been able to find 
where it says that the framers thought that the federal government knew more how to educate our children than uh, than the states or the localities. So I, I'm a believer that uh, the process should be started. It can't happen overnight, but should be started to eliminate the Department of Education, give that power back to the state, all 50 states, and to the localities. You know, the government is best when it's governed the closest to the people, not D.C. Um, you know, South Carolina has its own education issues. We, we all know that. But if, you know, hypothetically, if, if whatever money is going through, based through income tax to the federal government came, instead of going there, stayed at the state level, where they could reinvest in education in whatever South Carolina deemed, um, you know, uh, expedient for its children. Now, Georgia may want to do something different. Uh, the same with Tennessee and North Carolina and so on. School of choice, you know, that the choice program uh, is, is, uh, uh, is extremely important. Uh, the same with the vouchers. Um, but the federal government, the crux of it all, the federal government needs to get out of the education business. It's time to you know, sell that property, get it back on the tax rolls of somebody, Send the, uh, the state, and every state and the localities, let them educate the children that they see the uh, uh, best fit. I just want to make a notation that I see phone numbers. I see people up in the studio in our, on our switchboard. Um, if you want to ask our guest, Mike Covert, who is running for Congress, uh, a question, uh, please press one. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that you're simply listening in. Um, I want to thank you for that. Any questions or comments, just press one, and I'll see that you come into the queue. Um, I'm looking at my questions here. Now, you talked about cutting the budget and taking out – how much did you say? How much trillion? One point what? $1.7 trillion, and that was, that was just after a weekend of reading CBO reports and uh, you know, doing my own research, and, and actually by doing that, and I, I did not touch Medicare, I did not touch Medicaid, and I did not touch the military, uh, and still collectively came up with about $1.7 trillion that uh, just off the top uh, can, can be altered uh, to cut some serious money that's wasted by our federal government. Now, what's another high priority that you would see cut that you, you saw in the budget? Well, the... Um, Oh gosh, there there's so many there's so much waste. Um, the there's so many departments that um, are are not necessary on the scale that they are uh, right now, and what we've grown into. We've grown, you know, the federal government has grown into this behemoth of a machine uh, that must be fed, and it's fed with uh, all you know your money and my money. The the biggest scandal, the biggest theft in the history of man is the income tax. We've talked about it for a long time, and people have floated ideas uh, of this tax and that tax. Point blank, and I, I feel that the income tax is a is highway robbery of, of the American citizen. I believe in a more of a fair tax with a prebate. Um, and there, there are arguments pro and con, and, and I get it. I understand. Uh, services have to be paid for, but 
income tax is is immorally, you know, since everybody's using it, immorally wrong. Uh, a fair tax with a prebate, um, I think, is one of the very first things that needs. And again, that won't change overnight, uh, but definitely the the uh, it needs to be talked about on a serious note. Uh, there are other things, you know. There are several the the, the uh, age uh, social security age of retirement. Uh, it's a fact that Americans are living longer. It's a fact that Americans are working longer as they grow older. Um, so if we made a simple change uh, as ra from raising the social security retirement age from 65 to 67, um, that's upwards over five to eight years, two hundred billion dollars. Uh, you know, just simple things like that. Uh, how how we are literally getting getting hijacked of uh, of our money uh, by the federal government. Well, one of the things that uh, uh, Reagan tried to do and Bush tried to do was to privatize Social Security, allow people to put their own money away. And I said this a long time ago. If if I had done that from the day I was working, taken the amount of money that they took out of my check for taxes and Social Security, and I took that same amount and put it in a simple savings account, by the time I retired, I would have been a millionaire. Would you sure. support getting rid of, you know, phasing out Social Security as people, you know, enter the workplace, they no longer are subject to Social Security taxes and allow them to take that money and put it aside themselves? That is, uh, you know, that's a, that's an interesting topic and um, talked about but not really in depth. And, and I believe that, you know, you can't, A, I don't believe in overt taxes. Um, having, you know, everything being taxed, uh, all the time is, is, is criminal. Um, the Social Security system, um, you know, is supposed to be there uh, for not your retirement, but but as an added entitlement that you you put into. And that word gets misused a lot. Uh, for when you do retire, I, I believe that you know I would like to see people do that. What you're saying exactly. I don't know if that can be, you know, again, I don't like using the word enforced. Um, we have some serious problems with Social Security. Uh, you know, the, the whole, uh, the effort of in, insolvency. So there needs to be something, it, it needs to be addressed, uh, maybe not for now, but for the future uh, by far. Uh, you know, my, uh, my children's children, um, you know, that are still uh, young, uh, you know, under the age of 10, uh, they, they're not going to have social security. So something needs to be done. Uh, we need to think outside of the box and create that avenue that Americans can for themselves best decide how to put their money away. Uh, you know, I, I worry that some people, you know, some children today aren't even explaining what a savings account even is. Um, you know, the family needs to to get back to that. Um, local education needs to get back to that, uh, not insisted on by the, um, you know, by the government through a socialized institution. You know, I'm not for that. 
Yeah, it's funny because you heard the Democrats come up with various ideas uh, for taxing the rich. And when I hear them saying, oh, it's only be the top 1%, it's only going to be, I think Pelosi said, people with assets of $10 million. And, you know, a lot of small businesses and family-owned farms may have the assets, but they do not have the cash flow to pay taxes year upon year upon year on their assets. Not their income, but the assets is what she proposed. And it blew my mind. And I, kept on, I, I said this on the show several times. Where have we heard this before? It will only be the top 1%. This is the way they passed the income tax amendment. They said it's not going to be the average man. It's only going to be the top 1%. And lo and behold, Every single person has to pay income tax, unless you're an illegal here. Uh, they don't have to pay anything. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it's you're it's you're, you're exactly yeah you're, you're exactly right. It's the big it's one of the big lies that the Democrats have told for years, uh, and unfortunately we uh, we being uh, you know for for many many years we've all bought into it and and uh, and it's time that we stop that. Uh, it's time that we you know, somebody asked me one of the reasons that I was running for Congress, and I said, "Look, I am—I'm a businessman. I've, I'm just like every caller that comes on here and everybody that listens to your show. You know, I've been—I've been on highs and I've seen lows. Every Wednesday, uh, right before I sold the business, you know, I had to worry about payroll. Okay, I had—I had you know up to 21 people that I were counting on me to." to pay them for the work so they could put bread on their table. And you've got all the folks in D.C. right now, nothing against lawyers, but majority lawyers, uh, who can only dream up new taxation. Let's keep taxing and let's keep spending. Uh, and you're going to, you know, you can't tax yourself and you can't spend yourself into prosperity. It's been proven. It's been proven. And, and we've seen, we've read, and et cetera. But, you know, this, the 70 percent, 80 percent, 90 percent, all of these stories, the Green New Deal, this is this is abhorrent, um, unrealistic, categorically ignorant uh, talk of, of, of trying to initiate new taxation. It's just absolutely insanity. Mike. Well, we were talking about the Green New Deal earlier. And I have to say, uh, last night I was watching Lou Dobbs, and he played a clip of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez trying to explain the Green New Deal. I swear, his eyes bugged out. His mouth dropped open like, what? And she was saying, oh, because of the global warming, people's living rooms are flooding. (laughs) Unbelievable. I'm sorry. I I I, I was watching Lou Dobbs, and I just cracked up. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, um, I was just wondering what you thought about the Freedom Caucus, and if you were to uh, go to Washington, would you join up with them? Uh, good question. And you know, the Freedom Caucus, uh, great bunch of, uh, of folks up there, and uh, of course, Mark Sanford was uh, was a, a, in you know, in the uh, uh, Freedom Caucus. I am. I'm one of those that is willing to talk to to everybody. I'm willing to sit down and have conversations that uh, are, are generally hard to have, um, but but I don't mind having them. I think that's the business 
person in me coming out that time is money and I don't like wasting either one. So the, the Freedom Caucus, absolutely. Matter of fact, I believe they're one of the groups, um, they're the actual leader of the Freedom Caucus um, we're supposed to meet with in, uh, in March. Uh, and there's several others. Uh, I'm fortunate enough. We're going to, we have a big meeting with the NRA, uh, as I'm, as I'm being told. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited about that, you know, and I don't have to prepare this, this, this long, uh, repertoire. It's, this is what I believe in. This is what I think people that I relate to, uh, that is like you and, and Ann and anybody else in the first district. Um, it's, it's simple. This is not hard. This is this is about life. Um, so yeah, to, to answer your question, I know I went around the block there, but the Freedom Caucus folks, yeah, I, I look forward to talking with the leader of, of, of the Freedom Caucus. As a matter of fact, Mike, um, we've got our Tea Party meeting here on the 18th, so I want you to uh, to uh, be our guest introducing because you are the only one officially running against Cunningham at this point. I would love to. I think that's over uh, over in Beaufort. Uh, just send me the email, yep. the address, and I'd love to. And I have. Uh, I'm, I'm. We're real, real fortunate that I have a team here locally. Uh, you know that is is guiding me, and then 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 myself and our team locally. Uh, we we have an, an outfit, uh, a company in in Vegas, uh, who is taking care of the national, the thirty thousand foot uh, deal if you will. And, um, you know, we're, it's really, uh, it's great to have those kind of people behind me. Um, I think we said at the beginning that right now we are, we are in fundraising mode to show our, our vitality and our viability, uh, getting our message out there. You know, once, once I've, I've, uh, you know, the people in DC and the NRA and the NRCC and, and others, once they've, they got to, you know, we, we meet and we talk and hopefully they will, uh, they will want me to, uh, you know, be a part of their team. I plan on every, every, town, every parish, every township in the first district. Uh, I plan on going to, and whether it's the, uh, you know, a Tea Party meeting, Republican meeting, uh, Libertarian meeting, it doesn't matter to me. I'll talk to anybody and spread the message that we don't need to continue to tax ourselves and think that prosperity is going to come because the way that obviously the democratic party has moved, uh, they are going to tax, they want to tax us into socialism and just ask Venezuela, how's that working out for you? Exactly. Matter of fact, there's a couple of people, I think uh, I'm going to, I'll send you an email with some people that maybe you want to talk to uh, because Curtis, I think George Farrell would be an excellent person for him to speak with, to help him with his campaign. Um, your thoughts, Curtis? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Because, uh, Mike, I don't know if you were at the uh, our county GOP meeting when George Farrell spoke. He has the nationwide PAC called Black PAC, where he goes and supports uh, constitutionally based and Christian uh, conservatives going for elected seats. Oh, no, I wasn't there. Would love to. Uh, would love to meet him and or talk to him, or however I can do that. All right, I'll, I'll get a hold of him, and I'll send you his information, too, on that one. Um, another person you should probably talk to is Eric Pratt of Gun Owners of America. Uh, they've been around for a long time, and it would also be, since you are so pro-Second Amendment, someone you should also talk yeah. with. 
Um, I'll see if I can dig up his information, too, for you. Um, we have this crisis going on the southern <laughs> We've got this, this crisis going on the southern border. Uh, but as a yes. friend of mine says, he always asks people, how many states are border states? Mike, how many would you say? I'm putting you on the spot. Well, how many states are border states to the southern border or all borders? Yep. I'm all sorry. Borders. And this is. Oh, gosh. There's probably. Before a... You say the wrong thing. Don't answer. I'm going to let you, let you in on a secret here because I have a friend of mine. A former INS worker, he testified before Congress and the Senate. Uh, he was at the 9-11 hearings testifying. And he always says this correctly. Every state is a border state. If you've got an international airport, if you've got a, a seaport or a river port, any sort of a port, you are a border state. So we're talking, you hear Congress talking about the southern border. But what about the borders within all of the states? You know, would you Very be true. willing to help work on the security where you have visa overstays? A lot of people come in here legally, but overstay and become illegal. And it's not just the southern or the northern yeah. borders. It's all borders. That's right. That, you're exactly right. And, and I tell you, my stance on uh, uh, the, the whole, this is a big, big, broad stroke, big, broad p- picture here. Uh, the southern border, uh, yes, there is a crisis, and we need a barrier. Every every nation needs to maintain its sovereignty. And I, I know people that live on the border, uh, a good friend of mine uh, in New Mexico, and, and I hear the stories. And, you know, what we are hearing on MSNBC and CNN is not true. It's flat out not true. We need to have. Did Mike just drop? Did we just lose Mike? Mike, it are you with us? That way. I think my, I think his phone dropped. Uh, well, we'll see. Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Hello. Mike, you dropped out for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your right. phone dropped I, for a while. I'm sorry. I, I was saying that uh, you know, there, whether you call it a chain, a, a chain link fence, a barrier, a wall, or whatever, there needs to be security to maintain our sovereignty. Uh, that's first and foremost. Uh, as far as overstaying your visas uh, and visas in, in, in immigration and illegal immigration, my thoughts are very basic that, you know, this is a country of immigrants. We're all, you know, unless you're, you're from Indian, American Indian descent, we're all from somewhere. Uh, it, this is the world's biggest melting pot. But there's a right way and a wrong way. So I'm all for immigration as long as it's done properly and legally. If you are here illegally, that we, the, the conversation should end because the word illegal is against the U.S. law. So I, I, I struggle sometimes with wondering how in the world do people accept something that's illegal? So, you know, yes, there needs to be proper immigration um, the process uh, can happen. It needs to happen, but people can't circumvent it. If you're here on a work visa or an education visa um, and it's and your visa is up, then, you know, your visa is up. I see nothing to argue that point. Um, if, and I don't know if, you know, if you can renew it, I would assume you could. Um, then you should do that. If you didn't do that, you, and it's time to go home, then it's time to go home. 
any other country in this world um, that I've ever been to, and I've been to quite a few, I've never been able to casually just walk in undeterred, uh, undetected, and and go about my business. No, they, they want to know how long are you here, what are you doing here, how much money did you bring here, and where are you going to stay? So America needs to be on that page or even better. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to throw in with DACA because here I have a pet peeve. I mean, when you turn 18, if you came here as an infant or a young child and you were unaware that you were here, and at the time you turn 16, 17, 18, you go for your driver's license, you go to apply for college, somewhere along the way you're going to be made aware that you don't have a birth certificate for here in the United States. Now, I can understand that with a DACA kid, and you got to find out what you can do to help this kid along. And I will tell you a true story. Uh, when I first started doing this radio show, oh, good Lord, uh, nine years ago now, Lindsey Graham did something when he first got into the Senate. A young woman approached him, a resident here of South Carolina. She turned 18, found out she was not here legally when she found out she didn't have a birth certificate. So she contacted the senator's office, and he worked with her. And he worked out a deal where she went back to her native country and stayed with relatives for a short period of time and then came back legally, was able to attend college and become an American citizen. That's what DACA kids should be doing. But if a DACA kid is now here and as Obama passed his executive order, you're 35 years old. Something's wrong with this picture. So what is your (laughs) idea on handling these DACA kids? Well, you know, I, I happen to – I don't agree with Senator Graham on a, on a lot. Uh, I do do some, but not a lot. But I do agree with how that was handled. And that's – you know, senators and congressmen's offices can do they, – they're, they're available for that. All you have to do is communicate with them. Um, you know, I wish that would happen uh, – be the norm and not the exception um, – it's. It, I have to agree with you, Ann. That you know, if you're if you've been in this country, you know, your whole life basically, and you you know, you're you're a DACA uh, child uh, or or a young adult. By the time you know you are you are out of school, you know, you you should have heard the word birth certificate. Um, it goes without saying. By the time you're 35, I just don't buy that. You know, you can you can go along that long in life. Um, and not not realize that you know you you need to have credentials uh, everywhere else in this world they call them papers um, we we obviously aren't requiring that I do I will I will definitely say um, I do believe that there is a there is a sincere and 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 evident problem when uh, children uh, are separated from their parents. That's not a Trump thing, uh, and if I'm correct, if I'm wrong, but I believe that was an Obama uh, started that deal, or may have been uh, may have been Bush. Uh, in, anyway, there is there is a problem, and we have to we have to address that. I don't know what the right answer is, but I know there's a problem. There is some, you know, I think we see President Trump now is is working on some compromise. Um, and I get that, you know, you, you have to be able to compromise and, and, and work things out, but I do believe there needs to be solid, stable policies in place 
those that are are entrusted to carry out those um, those pol- you know those policies they need to do it. You know, uh, law enforcement cannot decide or should not decide um, you know whether to to enforce law or not. That's what they're here there for. Um, I guess at the end of the day. Um, you know the the child, uh, you know, being brought here, uh, born, it's not their their fault. But according to U.S. law, you know, I, I do not believe that, um, you know, that's that's a, uh, uh, and it's not legal. Um, that's that at the end of the day, uh, that's really what it's boiled down to. But it's it is extremely important, uh, one of the highest priorities. Uh, with the immigration issue in all of its totality is DACA and the Dreamers. This this has to – we have to come to compromise and work this out. Uh, I just want to mention once again, I do see more people coming into the studio uh, onto our switchboard. If you are either our next guest or have a question of Mike Covert who's running for Congress, please press 1. Uh, BTR doesn't tell you that, but if you press one, then you come into the queue, and I can bring you live onto the show. We have just a few more minutes left before our next guest does call in, uh, Mike, so I'm going to hang on to you for a little bit longer, if you don't mind. Sure. One of my pet things, and every show we start, and you, I, you told me that you do listen, we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And yeah. what is happening to our military and our veterans is abhorrible. Now, Trump has mm. been being able to start revising the VA and allowing veterans to go to the doctors of their choice. It's something new that just started happening. Um, but what mm-hmm. would you like to see with the military? Because you said you looked at the budget and you didn't cut any money yeah. out of it. What would you do to strengthen the military then? Well, I support President Trump in his, his uh, you know, the last budget of seven was $700 billion for the military. Uh, the new budget, I believe, is $750 billion um, for, uh, to the military. I, I support that. Um, I, I believe that, you know, America, uh, the United States must have um, the most powerful military on this planet. Um, through strength, there is peace. Um, the um, uh, the military in in my in, in the the uh, budget cuts that I had put on paper, military was left off that didn't touch it. Um, I'm very sensitive to the military. I support our military a hundred and fifty percent. I watch and read uh, about BRAC. That is very important, obviously, especially to us here in Beaufort County in the first district. Um, you know, I, I uh, when my when I go to uh, D.C. here in March, I have a meeting with uh, with one of the staffers from Senator Graham's office, and the 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 conversation is actually about BRAC, and uh, with the uh, bases here in the first district, what expansion uh, is is on the table. So, you know, we. Um, we have a lot of work to do. I support President Trump and where he uh, has been and where he's going um, to keep us again. The uh, you know the, the United States military uh, must be the best, well outfitted, uh, up to date, state of the art military on this planet. Well, we have a comment in our chat room from Bork, and he said, 
Worf, I'm sorry, said that he wanted to see our, our senators and congressmen to get their free medical for life down at the local VA hospital. <laughs> that, that would really yeah. change. I, uh, I, I like to answer to that one. I don't believe that senators or congressmen should get free medical uh, for life, and, and they don't. And and I don't I wouldn't want them. I think that's 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 a that's a waste of money. Uh, the VA to answer really to answer your your question with the VA, um, it's with what President Trump brought to the table, being letting uh, vets be able to go anywhere they want when they couldn't get into the VA. I've seen those lines in Charleston. Um, I'm not a vet, so I, I I haven't experienced that, but I have seen those lines and I've talked to people. That if you know, it, it actually brings them down, and that's that. That's just not right. Um, we, you know, now we have the right to try. How awesome is that? In my opinion, that uh, you know, whether you know, say back when when the uh, veterans came home from Vietnam, and you know, once you got into the 80s, and and the effects of Agent Orange were happening. I remember that as a kid. You, there wasn't you couldn't try anything you know that wasn't in in our vocabulary in our thought process now you know it's opened it up i'd also like to see you know i can't stand it when i hear how many veterans uh are homeless uh that just i mean that really pulls at my heart um and and we're worried about things uh that may be important to some people but you know while our 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 vets uh, we have uh, a, a, an enormous amount of veterans that uh, don't have anywhere to live, don't have anything to eat, but but yet they put their life on the line and their family on the line. So you and I can have and, and see us has, have this phone call right now. Um, we we have got to take care of the veterans that 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 we should be so proud of. Absolutely. And it's possible we may have our next guest in the line as soon as uh, Curtis gets done checking this out. So just hold on to you for just a second until he lets me have the signal. <clears throat> and uh, just what would your first priority be? What is the thing that you feel is the most important you want to do once you do get to Congress? <laughs> well, uh, you know, gosh, the one thing, I don't know that I could say that there's one thing. Uh, it's it's you know for me personally, uh, it's time to to start uh, cutting you know cutting cutting ex, ex, uh, wasted expense, uh, just like you would in a business. Um, you know if if people knew what um, congressmen and senators are afforded you know for their office and and staff and blah blah blah. Uh, there's no sense in you know. There's no sense in that. I think setting the expectation, you know, that I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna walk the walk. Not only will I talk it, but I'll walk it. And at the same time, it's there is a huge relationship. Uh, obviously, we see that every day almost. There was a there's a relationship gap. You know, I don't uh, mind debating anything, especially with a Democrat. I, I quite frankly, I enjoy that. And I look forward to that. I would love to debate uh, uh, Maxine Waters or Ocasio, whoever. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care. But you can do well, like, that, it, it, and at it, the end of the day, you walk away, and, and, and you're civil. Right now, we've lost civility. Uh, so I look forward to building that relationship where people people will know, okay, this guy, he, he's like anybody else. He talks like anybody else. He looks like anybody else. 
but he is firm on his beliefs that at the end of the day, we can go have a Coke together. Absolutely. Mike, I want to thank you for joining us. And I'll shoot those emails over to you, uh, if not tonight, tomorrow. Uh, and the 18th is our meeting. You know where, where we meet. Um, so I'll get I that information so, yes. over to you, and then I'll start posting posting the emails to our members. People can find you, MikeCovertForCongress.com. God bless you, Mike, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you, my friend. Take care. <laughs> Take care. All right. All right. We got our, our next victim up in on the line. Uh, he is the executive producer of Gosnell, the movie, and I've got my signed copy of the book from Ann and Film in front of me. So welcome aboard, John Sullivan. Good afternoon, John. How are you today? Hey, Annie, thank you for having me on. I'm I'm doing well. Oh, it is my pleasure. And my husband and I uh, watched the movie. And for people that want to know where they can get the movie, I understand Walmart now has it prominently displayed, which is really gutsy. Uh, check with your satellite and cable provider. I, it's up on video demand is where my husband and I found it. We rented it. It was available for 48 hours to watch. Uh, but you can also get the C- the DVD now, as I understand, on Walmart. Correct, John? Uh, that is correct. Uh, you can also uh, order it off of Amazon, too. But uh, if you have a local Walmart store, you can just walk in there, and it should be there. Absolutely. And people can go to gosnellmovie.com to learn more about the movie. But this is not the first film that you have done with Ann and Film, is it? Uh, yes, actually, this is the first film I've done with Ann and Phelan. That you had done some other work with them, unless I read that uh, bio the wrong way. Um, uh, yeah, no. But what got you involved I, I, in the? Go ahead. Oh no, it's the first time I, I worked with them. But uh, the other movies I'd done, I, I, I directed 2016 Obama's America, and then the follow-up America with Dinesh D'Souza. And uh, I co-wrote those with Dinesh. And then actually how I met Ann and Phelan was in 2012. Uh, we were in the green room at CPAC, which is the big uh, conservative uh, political um, convention in Washington, D.C. And uh, Ann spoke right after Dinesh spoke that year. So I actually met them backstage. We started talking. They said they were from Los Angeles. They were filmmakers. Um, we had 2016 coming out that year. And so we connected there and then have stayed in contact. And then when uh, the opportunity came up for us to work together, uh, that's how we kind of joined up on Gosnell. Yeah, now we watched the film. And for a independent producer, uh, it is so well done. And my husband kept on looking and goes, this is an independent film? And I said, yes, it is. It, it shows the professionalism of not just you, but the crew and the cast and how well it followed the book and the story of uh, the abortionist, Kermit Gosnell. Yeah, we detailed to make sure we got the story right. You know, most of the script is actually taken from uh, transcripts, uh, from the court transcripts or from the detective notes. Um, we had both uh, one of the DAs and uh, Jim Wood, uh, who Dean Kane plays Jim Wood uh, in the movie, and we had the DA and Jim Wood on set with us to make sure that we got everything right. Uh, in fact, one day when Dean first started shooting, uh, and one of the first days we shot was the clinic days when they're they're raiding the clinic, and Dean's like, "Hey, isn't this a little bit overkill? I mean, it's so messy and so everything else." And I went and I was able to get the crime scene photos 
and some of the video that was taken during that day, and I showed it to him. And uh, he's like, nope, nope, we're doing it right. It's, it's exactly like it looks like on the, on the video from the police, uh, from the detectives there. So, you know, we went, we went through great lengths to make sure we got that part of it right. And thank you so much for saying it looks so good. And Nick Cersei, the director of the movie, did a really fantastic job uh, directing this, the film. He also plays the uh, defense attorney, uh, Cohen, in the um, film. So I thought Nick did a fantastic job directing it. Yes, he did. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, you tried not to make it disgustingly graphic, but you had to convey how nasty it really was uh, with the baby parts that were stored in the refrigerator next to someone's lunch, uh, the storing of the feet on the shelves. You, but you didn't make it where it was going to be revolted in, right? Correct. You know, we wanted to tell the story exactly how it happened. At the same time, we know. For a lot of people, even myself, you know, I don't kind of want to see that level of gore up on the screen. And, you know, we were very careful to make sure that we were able to convey the brutality and the depraved mentality of Kermit Gosnell. And at the same time, you know, we didn't want to make it so people couldn't watch the film. So we really kind of strike that line. And, you know, I'm also a father. I've got twin teenage daughters. And, uh, you know, they, they saw the film when they were 13 years old. Uh, when we were editing it, and, uh, you know, it is something that I think, you know, we've got a PG-13 rating on there, and I think it's appropriate uh, for that that level of a child, you know, for teenagers to watch it. And also, you know, this is something, if we can have younger people watch it and see the truth of who this person was and what was going on, um, you know, I think that's important. You know, uh, Kermit, the, there are Kermit Gosnells in the world, and we need to know that they exist, and we need to let people know that they exist, and that's why we made the film. But we really tried to make it um, toward his glory. And even at the end of the movie, um, you know, they're, they're in the one of the kids, baby boy A, who was killed uh, by Gosnell. And, you know, we go out of our way, and we don't even show that picture of him uh, in the courtroom. And, uh, you know, we went to great lengths to make sure that this movie was very watchable for people. Well, you know, there's a question in the chat room from Vorp, and he's asking if the, which was more gory, the crime scene or the ver- or the movie. But you, as you said, you tried to make it so it, you kept a PG-13 rating, so you couldn't be as graphic as the actual scenes, could you? No, exactly. So we um, definitely not, you know. And, and, and while things were kind of hinted at, like you were talking about. Um, you know, Gosnell was a guy, you know, when they went in and first busted him, by the way, they didn't bust him on a, uh, for doing delusions. Uh, they originally went in on a drug raid because he was selling uh, illegal prescription narcotics out the back door, uh, basically. And that's what they went in. And that's when they discovered, you know, when they went into the lunchroom um, is where they discovered that he was storing uh, these babies uh, in like, you know, orange juice containers, bags. And this was like in their break room, you know, that that he was doing this. And, you know, in these various refrigerators around the place, it wasn't like it was a clean environment at all. Um, so if we would have sh- – we could never have shown um, really what was going on at, at the level he was doing it at um, there for sure. Otherwise, you know, it would have got an R rating. Um, but it was important for us to have a PG-13 to keep the emotional um, tension there for people. And I think we do a very good job of that by the – 
user ratings and reviews we've gotten from audiences. You know, I think we've got a like five out of five star Fandango rating from users. Critics, something totally different, but we understand uh, their problem with the movie. But, uh, you know, it isn't about the quality of the movie. It's about the, the position, I think, on it. John, does this occur in Philadelphia? Did this occur yeah, in, this Phil- in Philadelphia, right, John? Oh, yes, this happened uh, you, in Philadelphia. Yes, West Philadelphia. Did you get um, a lot of technical assistance from uh, Philly's finest law enforcement on this movie? Uh, we we did actually, particularly uh, in 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 uh, Jim Wood, uh, who's been uh, a Philadelphia uh, detective, an undercover detective, uh, pretty much since the age of eighteen. Once he came out of the academy, so. He's been a uh, detective for almost 30 years um, there in Philadelphia, and we got nothing but great support um, from the, the police department. And then Christine Wexler, who is one of the DAs, uh, she was the uh, she prepped the case uh, but left before it went to trial. Um, she also gave us a lot of uh, great support um, and information on the film, and we had her on set even with us, both Jim and, and Christine on set with us. You know, because there's our questions coming up in the chat room. Um, but in the movie, the one scene that had me jumping was the scene where they went into the basement and they got covered with the fleas and the smell of the dead cat and everything else down there. I, I have six cats. And as soon as I saw that with the fleas climbing up, I started batting at my legs. Um, it, it, <laughs> you do give a sense with these actors of the actual the stench that was there, the filth that was getting marvelously done and able to keep a 13 rating. I, I was really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something I think uh, going back to Annan Phelan, who wrote the script uh, with Andrew Clavin and then Nick, and then all the actors, I mean, they did such a good job of creating all that tension without having to see any gore or anything on the screen. And, you know, Earl Billings, who plays Gosnell, I think does such a phenomenal job at bringing about the kind of creepiness, um, you know, and then that scene, you know, they're, they're raiding his house at that time. And he really did say to them, everything that's kind of there is, is what happened. You know, he, he offered to cook them breakfast. Um, and then he said, you know, please don't go down in the basement. It's very messy. And his house was a mess. I mean, the clinic was a mess. His house was a mess. But, you know, then you're like, wow, if, if he thinks, if he's saying the basement's a mess, it's got to be a mess. And that story exa- happened exactly as Christine described it to us um, when they went down into the basement and uh, encountered, like you said, the dead cat and all the fleas as they were looking for different files um, that Gosnell had at his house. Yeah. Now, in the testimony in the trial, because you've read the transcripts, was it ever explained why he kept those baby parts? So there, there, there are two different elements there. So one is he, he kept feet. Um, and again, we kind of, you know, kind of glance at those in the, in the film, but we don't really show them. Um, we show the officers finding them. Um, but he did keep uh, these, these feet in jars, which was very bizarre, um, almost like a souvenir, um, like a serial killer would keep. And then the second thing was that he did have, um, you know, they had all these babies stored around the facility um, that they were looking to get rid of. I mean, the, what Gosnell was not paying the, meta, the the company that was typically taking them away. Um, he hadn't paid them for quite a bit. And here's something I, I was recently um, in conversation with Phelan about this. Um, 
who wrote the script, and he and his wife were the uh, uh, Anne were were other producers on the film, um, was that Planned Parenthood because they'd been receiving government funds were able to lower their prices, and this is what really kind of caused forced Gosnell to kind of cut corners and um, come in and do this uh, and, and not you know pay the medical waste facility to take away these children that he was killing. Um, and again, you know, it's kind of, a, this is where truth is stranger than fiction. You know, you can't make this stuff up when this happens. Uh, you know, prior to that, he was, it, it appeared that he was taking him to a morgue and illegally they were getting rid of, uh, of burning them up. Um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, the guy just did not have any sort of care for human life, you know, uh, at any level. Now, the timing of the movie release and this New York State law, it is so coincidental. Did your film get any backlash because of this New York State law? Well, we had been out in theaters last October, so it came out in theaters last October. And then we came out on VOD and DVD just recently. Uh, in fact, I think we, we came out DVD this week. Um, you know, that wasn't planned with the New York State laws. Those just happened to happen. Uh, you know, the, as you said, the coincidence there. So we haven't necessarily got some backlash, but I think what it's shown is uh, Nick Cersei actually wrote a very good article about this. It was in Town Hall, I think, um, about how, look at, you know, Gosnell was just in the wrong state. Had he been in New York, what he was doing, you know, in a lot of respects, technically would not have been illegal um, in that sense. And now you have Virginia that is proposing, you know, a similar situation. Uh, and, and, you know, this is actually in other states. It's already going on. In California, uh, that law is going on. They just haven't celebrated it like New York did. You know, I mean, I think that's where that went to another level in New York when they kind of lit up the town and the bridges um, to celebrate the fact that they just signed this bill allowing them to kill children. Um, at that, you know, that, that's where this kind of went too far for people. Um, because you already have states like California and New Jersey that that's a, that's already available yeah and uh, we're seeing activity in pushing this with Planned Parenthood in Louisiana Florida you mentioned Ohio Tennessee New Mexico Rhode Island these are just some of them and you mentioned now California but <clears throat> people want to get an idea of just how many babies have been aborted murdered I'm going to say it correctly murdered since Roe v. Wade it said that you can fill the Super Bowl stadium, the one that just played this past week, the 2019 Super Bowl, 860 times. That's 60 million children were murdered. That is, uh, that is for a free nation like ours, that is so wrong. Yeah, it's it's a very scary statistic when you kind of look at that since that time frame in 1973 and what's gone on. And now, you know, with what, you know, coming into this process, one thing I didn't understand um, was, you know, I kind of thought like, and many people I think think this, is that, you know, an abortion, you know, is really kind of within the first trimester. Um, it's not. I mean, it's state by state on how late it can go. And this is what we've just seen in New York is that they basically passed it to where until the baby is born, um, literally the second before it's born, it can be aborted and killed. Um, and then Virginia was, you know, proposing, the governor there was proposing, along with Kathy Tran, that basically you could, 
kill the child after it's born even. Um, you know, they, w- they would give it what was called comfort care. Um, and we described this in the movie. We have actually one of the abortionists, uh, played by Janine Turner, describes this uh, in the movie. And that's taken directly from court transcripts uh, of what that process would look like if a baby was born alive and they wanted to uh, do a post uh, birth abortion basically is they would just allow the baby to, uh, you know, die up on a tray. Um, what Gosnell was doing was accelerating that by what he called snipping, where he would, you know, basically snip the necks of the children um, to accelerate that process. Uh, but basically at the end, it's the same thing. You have a child born alive that's, you know, basically being murdered either through uh, expiration of not being cared for, which every baby will expire that way, right? If it doesn't have its mother with them, feeding them, keeping them warm, every child's going to go that way. Um, but this one's just a conscious choice not to do that. Uh, you know, it is scary that we live in a society that is saying that this is okay, um, you know, that this is up for debate. Um, and at the same time, you know, we have people that don't want to have animals, euthanized or, you know, talking about our environment and the future generations, you know, it, it, it really kind of is, it, we're a very confused nation, I think, when it comes down to this issue. It's funny, you put more, st- they would put more stock in the Delta smelt or the hooded owl or some other endangered species, but a human life is expendable. And that's inexcusable. Matter of fact, Bette Midler, put out a tweet, and she's got something like 1.53 million followers. She tweeted, buy stock and coat hangers. Here we go. 60 years. Back to the back alley. Is, is, is that not just reprehensible that this, this, they would treat the human life like that? No, I mean, for me, it, it, it is terrible. One of the reasons why I got into this movie, um, you know, for the crimes of what Gosnell uh, did and, and to demonstrate like we were going down this pathway, you know, I have, I have two daughters that are teenagers now. Um, but you know, they were twins and it was a very, um, uh, you know, the pregnancy was very, my wife, um, and they were born premature, you know, um, they, they were born at 32 weeks. Um, and I'm sorry, 34 weeks. And, uh, you know, they were premature, uh, babies, and, you know, I, I remember holding them, you know, and seeing how little they were, you know, four pounds, uh, eight ounces and six pounds, four ounces. So they're very small. And, you know, but seeing that little life and holding that and that that is something that needs to be, you know, protected. Um, and it be, became very clear. And it's very hard for me to understand how somebody would would take that life out um, and, and want to see that, you know, that that child killed, to be honest. I asked this question on, on several of our shows. <clears throat> I mean, when you watch the TV commercials for St. Jude's Children's Hospital or the Shriners Children's Hospital, how can you turn around and say that not one of those children should have been born because they have a defect or a health issue? You would deny them a chi- chance at life, an equal chance as any other living creature. No, it's... You know, I have I have several friends who have you know that that by most accounts, you know whether they have cerebral palsy, uh, Down syndrome, uh, cystic fibrosis, um, you know whether their friends or my kids, uh, my friends' kids, you know 
from that standpoint. And I, I look at them and like, I have a friend who has Down syndrome. Did we just lose John? I think we just lost John. Curtis. Yeah. Well, we're down to our, our last two and a half minutes. John, you still with us? I guess we lost him. We're definitely going to have to get wow. him back on. I'm just going to get a hold of his agent and see if I can get him back can on. Can you guys hear and me? hopefully do more time. Oh, now we got you back. Yeah, we're down to our last two back? and a half minutes, John. So we got to wrap He's up. Back. You guys hear me? He's back. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yes, we can hear Sorry, you. Sorry, guys. We're... I don't know what happened there. Um, but I was just describing how, you know, I have friends that, you know, by the by people's standards should probably not have been born, whether they have Down syndrome or cystic fibrosis uh, or cerebral palsy. And, you know, you know, I look at my friend with Down syndrome um, and he's an incredible guy. He's an actor. Uh, he's, he's a good friend. Um, he's somebody I love to have in my life. Um, you know, he's, he's totally blessed my life being a part of it. And uh, he's a funny guy. And, uh, you know, I, I think we make a big mistake um, when we try to define you know, this is this is the person that should be able to live, and this is the person that we we have to snuff out. You know, some sort of defect. Absolutely. Down to in our our last uh, few seconds here on the show, John. I want to thank you for joining us. People can find the movie at GosnellMovie.com, also up on Amazon, and now in Walmart. God bless you for the hard work you've done, John. And we're definitely going to have to get you back on again. Oh, thank you guys for having me on, and uh, thank you for talking about the a issue pleasure. and talking about the movie. Well, you enjoy pleasure. your weekend, and God, again, God bless for the hard work you do, John. Check out All right, the guys. movie. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Gosnell. Bye. All right, you too. You too. com. Uh, like I said, we're down to literally our last few seconds. We'll be back here again on Friday. We've got Dr. Everett Pepper. He's going to be uh, Piper. He's going to be joining us again. Uh, Dr. Alvita King, she's going to be joining us, uh, Sergeant Mike McGrew, and we also have a new author out, uh, Clint Johnson, Tin Cans and Greyhounds, talking about World War II destroyers, a really interesting book, very fascinating. Uh, so we're going to have an excellent show. We're going to be talking about progressive pastors as well as this, these new abortion laws that are popping up course the nation um want to thank everyone that joined us in the chat room and in the studio so until then i say good night and god bless